welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole presents a space podity, uh, where three guys in their late thirties take you through all of David Bowie's work in random order by rolling the diamond dice. And on this week's episode, we have rolled on number twenty, David Bowie's twentieth studio album, Black Tie, White Noise. Uh, with me, as always, oh, this is Mark, one of the hosts and creators. And uh, with me, as always, I have Stephen Earl, the Buddha of my basement. Nice, nicely done. Uh, keep rubbing that belly. Um, and then the the man who always has the answers, who's done the research, who's checked the math. Eric Monroe Anderson. Row, row, row. Good, good evening. I'm on a singing mood. I'm just, I'm just kicking my, my, my uh, silky suit around and uh, and singing like I'm in love. No, speaking, speaking of your suit, I was thinking about it since uh, last week's episode when Mark was asking about how did David Bowie get involved with uh, Cool World, the movie, and. I didn't, it probably didn't take them much to entice him. Maybe before they even recorded the whole film, he saw some press pieces for it and he saw those oversized suits they were going to wear in it. And he thought that they would give them some of, you know, they'd kick him some of those suits back for free yeah. if he recorded them a song. I mean, yeah, undeniably. I mean, uh, those suits were like, would make even David Byrne want to contribute to the, <laughs> to the soundtrack. Yeah. So I tied it all together. It's those damn blue suits. It's the key. That's the key right there. Um, that was uh, the final straw his agent had to go back with and be like, we want some suits. So uh, here we are recording at the uh, second week of July. Uh, America's independence just passed us by. And as uh, true red-blooded Americans, I'm sure all three of us were out there uh, waving the old stars and bars, <laughs> grilling some meat. <laughs> I don't know about the stars and bars. <laughs> I don't think that's the flag you think it is, Mark. Well, what's, what flag have I got hanging up in my house? Why do... Why? <laughs> There's stars oh. and bars on, on, on uh, the old red, white, and blue, the old stripey one. Uh, technically, yes, but stars and bars usually a nickname they give to that flag that uh, nobody should be flying. Uh, we don't have time to litigate that tonight. I don't think we'll lose any listeners. So, uh, like true red-blooded Americans, were we out there setting things uh, illegally on fire and uh, grilling meat and drinking watered-down beer, or were we inside wearing our thunder shirts like our dogs were? I was outside. My wife, my my wife took the whole damn week off for her birthday because she's one of those people. She went to L.A. the week before. And then came home and we had a 4th of July party, which just doubled as a birthday party. I don't know what she's trying to do here. But uh, it was she's not running right. a racket. It's, yeah. it's a racket, I tell you. It was not right time, but I, I, took, I took Thursday for today off. And uh, even though my whole company took Friday off, I didn't stop a certain person who runs the company from forgetting that and sending out billions of emails on Friday. Um, so that was exciting. If you're Steven's boss, thank you for listening as always. Yes, uh, no, thank you I'm for... sure you'll put this down in his review, but continue, <laughs> Steve. Thank you for keeping us on our toes and keeping us gainfully employed. Um, 
but uh, you know, yeah, it, it, was, it was actually it was a pretty relaxing weekend. Went and went and saw Toy Story four, like I mentioned last week, and I watched a bunch more Breaking Bad. It wasn't too hot. Uh, yeah, I'm more interested as getting these text messages from a friend of ours, a friend of the show, Mark Branstad, who seems to be catching up on some music. That's uh, some stuff that it. I typically suggest. Isn't that what you were doing? It's true. I mean, guilty as charged over here. So uh, I am famous for going through uh, my run-throughs on on bands, but this time I decided uh, to uh, put a little thrill-seeking into my life by bouncing back and forth between two highly rated bands. One band, classically, uh, has not been available on any of the streaming services up until recently. That band is uh, King Crimson. Friend of the show, Robert Fripp. Often mentioned on this show and our last show, the Nine Inch Nails show. Yep. But the difference is now that you can, if you've always wanted to check that King Crimson out, all their work, all their albums now, not just the live ones, all the studio records are available on all the streaming services. That's right. And I haven't finished. uh, I've got about three albums left to go. I just finished listening to three of a perfect pair. Mm. Um, That band definitely goes through uh, phases. In the early phase, it was very psychedelic and very uh, um, fluty and, you know, let's sit on a hillside and uh, talk about fantasy. And then um, they go into a second phase where they really get into jazz. Mm -hmm. And then the third phase uh, in the 80s when uh, Adrian Ballou and Tony Levin are in the band, um, they really go into kind of a poppy new wave and then uh, what I understand, their later work, Thrack and um, uh, Power to Believe, are more aggressive because uh, they're touring with Tool and some of that rubbed off. But the other yeah. band that I was also ping-ponging back and forth was Baroness. sleeping on this band for some time they've just released their newest record golden gray and i went through that like a hot knife through butter i really enjoy 
Baroness. I really enjoy that melodic metal. I enjoy Southern metal for whatever reason. Don't like Pantera, but I do kind of enjoy the uh, the Almond Brothersy version of metal um, and the sing-songy vocals and the album artwork. Uh, one song in particular that really resonated with me, I really enjoy, is Chlorine and Wine. That song is powerful and triumphant. I was bothering these guys earlier with, uh, I mean, that song just flat out. I, I listened to it. It's a good. Um, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad Eric got into it. And I, you know, this is whenever I, I uh, the three of us, we all have our moments where we're like, you guys got to check this out. And uh, I, I feel like I sent that message out to Mark like fucking a year ago or something, and it circled back and finally hit me. So I, I, I love yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, sometimes it takes some time. You know, on the last season, I was like, I'm going to try cave-in. Uh, for whatever reason, I hit a wall on cave-in, and uh, I just didn't pick it back up. I'll probably circle back to them uh, once I'm through this phase, but no promises. I might be like a, a dog with uh, shiny keys and go into another direction. I don't know. Yeah. yeah Eric. Oh. Uh, before Eric, I'm, cutting, I'm cutting Eric off. I never do that. <laughs> no, I, I just wanted to say, though, that if any if any listeners out there, Baroness, I'm telling you, uh, if you have any, if you like any, if you like any of the melodic metal, they're you know they're they're one of the ones that they have a really interesting story. They've had a bunch of drama in their lives, and uh, there seems to be even though I think that the albums tail off in production value, the songwriting is always there, and there seems to be a unifying element that I can't put my finger on through all the records. So. I co-sign on what Mark is selling. Yeah, uh, I'm having fun with both of them. I, as proggy as uh, King Crimson are, they are never boring. I, I really do enjoy them. That song, Starless, off of the album Red. Do yourself a favor, listeners. Find that somewhere. Listen to it with headphones, and uh, it'll just melt your troubles away. Guaranteed, or your money back. And if you if it sounds familiar, it's because it is used in the opening of the movie Mandy. And I, 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 I bet you if you were uh, looking at the looking at the visual uh, traffic on the internet after Mandy came out, that Red by King Crimson had a big bump because it's used very well in that movie. Now this is all preamble to what the hell did Eric do for the last four days, four weeks? What are you doing with, your, with oh. yourself? Well, you don't want to hear about it. I mean, I'm on a little bit of a, of a summer break. Um, not as long as when I was a teacher, but I got a few weeks off. Um, oh, I thought it was the Rodney Dangerfield back to school uh, situation uh, here. I thought that right. you were on summer break. That's from right. Getting yeah. Your, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, Sorry, it's, go it's ahead. It's all good. I was, I was going to, you tempted me to bust my, my Dangerfield out, but I'm going to, I won't keep it in my pocket for a little while longer. But uh, anyways, um, enjoyed uh yeah just a nice poolside fourth um went to bed really early for me i yeah just my heart wasn't in it this year and uh but i did have some good music to listen to as well because uh those listeners that have followed me down the industrial hole the new band three teeth not new they've been around for about uh six or seven years three teeth dropped the new one called meta war Yeah. 
They kind of sound like Symbols era, KMFDM, uh, early Fear Factory, and like mixed with a little bit of Manson. And um, it's uh, ridiculous at times, but it's uh, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful little album. So uh, not my favorite of theirs, but a fun listen from start to finish. So. Yeah, I did. Thank you for suggesting them. I listened to it. I liked it. I suggested it to a friend. I knew would dig it. He liked it. The Fear Factory vibes were definitely there. And uh, I'm always I'm always game for something that sounds similar to Fear Factory. And those guys, you know, they, they have some kind of pedigree because they've opened up yeah. for Romstein many times. And they're, they're buddies with Al. Speaking speaking of your industrial uh, foys, yeah. it was announced that KMFDM, has, yeah. they're putting a new album out. Um, and, you know, that's really technically not like huge news because they've been putting out very not good albums for the last 15 yeah. years or so uh, routinely. Uh, I, I, you know, we did, we have all given them the more recent stuff, a shot again. It's not as bad as I thought it was, but it's not as good as uh, it needs to be for me to even, for, for me to venture past anything by KMFDM after 2002 is very needed. Right. It's hard to do. But anyhow, they did put out a press release that said something along the lines of like, uh, the world's headed for a dystopia. Fascists rule everything and assholes are having their way. And KMFDM will not stand for it. <laughs> and uh, that, the wording of that press yeah. release was great to me. And how they're going to respond is uh, five tracks where they basically just continue to chant KMFDM. So it's, yes, uh, it's a good weapon to resist against the, the tyranny of Trump. But on one of those tracks... They, they they were specifically saying that Raymond Watts has done a song with them for the first time in a decade. Yeah, that's, so that's awesome. That'll be fun. Didn't Raymond Watts yeah. just drop a new yeah, album Pig, called Pig, Candy? Pig's Candy dropped. It's all cover songs. Mostly there's like, he covers like Kiss by Prince. Um, and then he does, covers like a slew of older songs too. There's like an Elvis song in there. Um, anyways, there's, yeah, it's, uh, I've listened to it. It's, it's, it's pretty good. I'm not very familiar with the songs. I bet if I was, I'd appreciate it a little bit more. But I know the Kiss cover's great. You know, I'm just going to say that he's becoming more prolific after our first season. So perhaps if you're out there, Raymond, yeah. <laughs> thanks for listening. No, there's something there. He, no, he put out, after our first season, he put out that last album, which name escapes me now. Oh, yeah, The, uh, the really Risen? Was, yeah, The Risen. It was a proper record. And then um, he put out that Christmas EP, which was ridiculous, but it still had that... Uh, that cover of right. the George Michael song that I liked. And then he put out another cover album, which is, you know, it's, he's always made silly covers and, uh, hopefully there's another yeah. proper album following he does soon. A good job. You can keep it up. And then pig is, pig is always welcome That's right. in this basement. So, so yeah, absolutely. That's that. So apparently, um, before we move into the nitty gritty, um, Steve, I think that you got some good feedback on, uh, on Twitter. Well, I got, you know, I got, well, we we have some album specific feedback later for the show, but uh, I was responding to some guy on Twitter who was asking. He just basically said, you know, he's he's from. If I were to have my Twitter groups, there's the sports groups, the politic groups, the comic groups, and the music groups. And this is a guy from the comic groups talking about Nine Inch Nails, and he just said, you know, of all, all songs, of all his name is David Uzamary. He's an old Twitter comic guy. They said, of all songs, Hersey still kicks me on my ass in 2019 in the age of foreign policy based on prophecy. And of course, I responded to that being like, it's a masterpiece. By the way, here's a link to my podcast. And, uh, <laughs> like and subscribe. Yeah, but no, no, no. There's, this, this is why you do that, though. This is why you do that. Every once in a while, you're going you're gonna to make somebody's day. 
And some, so somebody uh, with the username Word Distortion, he just said, recently discovered your podcast and have just finished the Nine Inch Nails series, my all-time band. Have to say a big thank you. You fill in a gap in my life. I know no other Nine Inch Nails fans. Big Bowie fan as well. So looking forward to those episodes. Well done and thanks. And I just have to say that's exactly why we like doing the show. Because whenever you get somebody responding like that that says, I never have anybody to talk to about this band, we all knew what that was like at a certain time. And if, you know, a bunch of strangers on the internet talking about it fill a gap for you, well, then, you know, we're happy to, we're happy to be here for that's it. That's right. So there you go. Steve will fill all Thanks your gaps. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So between, between, between Mark's comment about not knowing what we should call the American flag and now what you just said, Eric, uh, everyone, everyone's giving me something to use against them later. I love it. Uh, well. But let's get on to 1993, the year of black tie, white noise. was 1993 let's talk about where first we were in 93 steven i think you were all of you're 25 if i'm not correct if i'm not mistaken right 25 in 1993 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow <laughs> no I'm, I'm my dad's age no i was uh i was in seventh grade i think yeah seventh grade sounds about right doesn't it uh yeah i think we were 12 or 13 you were probably yeah. 13 yeah no i was older. in seventh grade and I, I, that was the year I, my parents divorced when I was nine. And by the time I got to be about 12 or 13, I decided that, you know what? I'm moving with my dad just just to be a pain in the ass. And it was a huge uh, mistake. Um, I feel like every day of that year was longer than it needed to be. And even though he lived in Rockland, California, I still went to school in Newcastle. And uh, just, it's a, it's a weird, that was a strange year for me. It was the same year I got to see Pink, Pink Floyd, though, I think. So that, that was fun. Nice. Was that obvious? Uh, I think Division Bell was uh, released in 94, so maybe one more year to go. Yeah. Well, it's all it's all a very boring time of a... Of a, a, a yep. I would have been 12. I turned 13 in December that year. Sitting at home, playing video games, trying exactly. to look at your dad's porn. Yep. Nope. Exactly. Exact to a T. It's like you had a camera in the house. <laughs> but... Uh, I do, but that wasn't around when I started like getting into. I was, I was already starting to buy Guitar World magazine, which is I've mentioned this before. I never played the guitar, but I bought Guitar World magazine for the interviews. Literally, yes, that's why because they were always talking to artists I like, and uh, that was when I was starting to go through the more aggressive music you would hear on the radio, getting into that, and starting to be like, oh, you know, actually speaking to Pantera earlier, it was this Pantera band all about, or oh. That's probably how I heard, first heard of ministry, possibly. So that kind of stuff was starting to creep into my life because we all know that 94 was like the big the big year for a lot of us with the 
how our music tastes shift. So, 93 was the precipice. How about you, Eric? Were you in Tucson, Arizona, trying to uh, chase salamanders? Oh, wish there, it's too dry for salamanders out there, pal. Those are, those are, those are lizards, Gila monsters out there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I just moved to Arizona. I, I had moved with a burgeoning taste in music. I was really into Nirvana and Primus that, that, that time of my life. And um, I moved to Arizona, had no friends, was really miserable. But, you know, they're less than maybe a year away. I'd buddy up with Greg Walgas, and he'd show me my first Nine Inch Nails, and all, all was better. But, uh, yeah, 93 caught, was catching me probably pretty alone, just having moved to Arizona. And, uh, yeah, was that. Did you have did you have the butt cut? Uh, I did. Oh, yeah, and that was probably part of the problem was, I like, eventually my butt cut – got down to my shoulders and was kind of like almost like a bob it would bounce up it was adorable but uh uh <laughs> at that point i was just starting to grow it so it was probably like a butt cut but like eye level like you know so definitely awkward phase butt cut so for me in 93 i was uh not so much uh into music as passionate as i am like probably that would hit me in Two more years. 95 is really when things really started to take off for me in terms of listening to music. At this point, it was whatever was probably playing on the classic rock radio. Didn't really follow music. I don't think I even owned a CD at this point. Sixth grade, seventh grade, I don't really know where I was. I was playing Little League, so I was really into baseball. So I wore a lot of baseball hats and starter jackets. That was the cool thing to do. <laughs> um and uh, playing video games uh, on either the Super Nintendo or Sega Genesis with my best friend uh, to protect the name of these of the innocent. I won't name him, but uh, he was a Genesis household and I was a Super Nintendo household. But how we made it work, we'll never know. Uh, but I was really into like TIE Fighter and X-Wing and Rebel Assault. Those games were at the height of their powers at that time. So I was a Star Wars nerd as well as a baseball nerd during this time. Rebel Assault. When you look back at it, not that good of a game. Terrible. You're on a track. You can't really do anything. It's just basically flying <laughs> through a cutscene. I mean, it might as well be Mad Dog McCree. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. The acting in there, because uh, it wasn't animated, it was basically, you know, just shitty, like, resolution of actors in store-bought costumes. It was not good, but what are you going to do? You got you to gotta get your Star Wars fixed somehow, and... Back then, this was before the release of the special editions, before Star Wars really started to re-enter the zeitgeist. But for me, it never left. I was I, I was a proud owner of the Star Wars encyclopedia, where I would look up facts on Zuckus and Greedo and IG-89 or 88. Yeah. So, yeah. How I'm married today with a beautiful wife and two kids, it still escapes me. I was gonna I was gonna correct you if you didn't get yourself in that bounty hunting robot's name. The IG eighty eight. I know. Yeah. I for shame. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's where we were in ninety three. Uh, what thrilling. was thrilling? This is that's thrilling radio. I mean, it's uh, it's crisp. It's crackling. I mean, I don't know how we uh, our listenership isn't raising and how we're not getting uh, sponsorships. A bunch but... of twelve to thirteen year olds sitting around by themselves in their rooms. Yep. Not making friends. We didn't know each other. We we're worlds apart at this point. Um, but where was David Bowie in 93? Eric, what, what did you uh, unearth in your research? 
Or what did Lennox tell you where David Bowie do was at in 93? That or do we want to talk about the year of 93? Uh, we're going to do uh, first Bowie in 93, and then we can talk about we kinda, we kinda go back the and year of 93. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, all right. Let's see here. Okay, so he had just gotten done with his Sound and Vision tour where he re- retired a bunch of his old hits from playing live. And I remember even when I saw him at the... Uh, the outside tour with Nine Inch Nails, they, he made an announcement that he wasn't, you know, he's like, I'm not playing any, you know, any of my old hits. So it was, uh, you kind of went into that knowing that, but, it, you know, it still ended up being pretty good. Um, yeah, he, he actually, so for most of the 90s, he plays old hits, did he? It was, he retired him at the start of the 90s and then he brought him back out of that Glastonbury show. I think that, I think that sounds right to me. Um, yeah, so he had just been secretly married to, uh, you know, the model Iman, um, and who was in the uh, "Remember the Time" video with Michael Jackson. Ah. I think during this time frame, maybe two years prior. Right. Yeah. So yeah, she was she was a pretty uh, not not nearly as important as she was in ha. Star Trek Six. The Undiscovered Country. Oh, yes. In 1992. And even though I know that David Bowie said the way they met was the, a blind date that some friend set them up on, they had dinner and they hit it off, we all know it's because he saw that scene in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, where she was playing a shape-shifting alien that kissed William Shatner. That's it. And then, and then turned into William Shatner, and uh, they fight each other, and eventually the alien dies. Anyhow, I think her turning into an alien after kissing William Shatner and then turning into William Shatner probably is what endeared David Bowie to her. <laughs> I feel like you're onto something. That's a memorable scene. And a good, a pretty good sequel, as far as I It's great. great. It's excellent. Christopher Plummer on fire in that movie. But go ahead, Eric. Eric continue. Eric, no, 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 Eric. I've always told you this, and you still haven't, you still haven't done it. But I told you, you keep trying to get into Shakespeare, and the reason you keep hitting that wall is because you haven't listened to it in Klingon. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> that old chestnut. <laughs> I, 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 had, I, was following, I, I, I haven't tried to get into Shakespeare for a long time. I've been into him for a long time. Thank you very much. But There you go. <laughs> Heather's rubbing off on you. Uh, all right. But continue. Yeah. So he got married. Uh, he wants to get back into doing his own thing uh, rather than being uh, chained down by the uh, the awesome power of Tin Machine, that band that went to save rock and roll. He decided to unchain himself and go into this. Right. Is that what I'm hearing? You're exactly right. Um, and he did. He teamed up with Niall, Niles Rogers. Nile Niall Rogers. Yeah, from uh, his producer from... Uh, let's dance. But what was Nile doing before then? So Nile Rogers, uh, he famously was the guitar player for the funk soul disco band Chic.
um, you know, Lit Freak. Uh, if you've seen, if you ever went to a roller skater or roller derby or roller rink in the 70s or uh, in the 80s, I'm sure you heard a little bit of Chic. Of course, in modern times, he's uh, more famous for producing Daft Punk's uh, third record, which went on to win, uh, I think, Album of the Year, a whole bunch of Grammys. Uh, so, And he also was famous for bringing out that, uh, that sound from David Bowie for Let's Dance. But he's very prolific, and he's worked with a variety of acts. He's from Madonna. Um, hell, I, I, the the list is uh, the list is long. Check it out. Diana Ross, in excess. Yep. Uh, Cindy Lauper, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh yeah. Houston, the Thompson Twins, Mick Jagger, Grace Jones. Uh, it goes all over the place, and he he very much he has a funk pop sound. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, if you listen to uh, Get Lucky uh, from Daft Punk, I mean, that's basically the signature sound from Nile Rodgers. Um, yeah. And uh, I I have to say that um, he was working on a lot of stuff that I, I, I think he worked on a lot of music that I didn't even know uh, he was involved. Like, I didn't know who he was, but I heard many songs he was working on throughout the majority of my life. I mean, even uh, even my dad, who I've said is a big Steve Ray Vaughan fan, after the or right around yeah, right around the time Steve Ray Vaughan died, uh, the, the 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 Vaughan brothers put an album out, and there is the connection between Steve Ray Vaughan and David Bowie on Let's Dance, but uh, actually Rogers produced that album, and that's a straight up blues album. Um, so yeah, he's a he was all over the place, and I uh, and I have to say that I listened to it yesterday. The song "Get Lucky" is still as timeless today as the day it came out. It's a good one. I never tire of that song. No, but yeah, he's uh, uh, a good collaborator with David Bowie. We can obviously talk about how that collaboration worked out on "Black Tie White Noise" as we go through track by track. Um, but for the most part, he's a hit machine. It's funny to read the recollections of Bowie and Nile about this time because Bowie's like, uh, if Nile and I wanted to do, you know, let's dance too, we would have done it years ago when it would have made more sense working together again. We avoided falling into that trap at all costs. That's Bowie's perspective. Nile's like, I don't know what the fuck he was doing. Like, he's like, I was offering him like catchy hooky gold and he was denying it and saying, no, I want to do it like this. And it was all this kind of same sound. And, even Niall like went to Iman, who he was friends with Iman also. He's like, Can you please tell him to just be more open to my ideas? And Iman's like, no, I like the stuff he's doing, or whatever. So you almost think like Iman was probably into like acid jazz and some of this club sound. And uh, a lot of it does sound like like 90s fashion catwalk music. And uh, yes. and you could tell like, you know, Bowie was definitely trying to make an album to impress, to impress her. Um, so it doesn't sound like their collaboration was simpatico. It doesn't sound like it was bad. Uh, 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 Rod Nile, uh, you know, he didn't. He didn't make those comments. Uh, where basically, said, yeah, David Bowie wasn't listening to him. He was a little stubborn. But I, I, I think that David Bowie thought he was making what was going to be another, another comeback album, and the best work he's done in a while. Rogers was probably thinking, let's just do Let's Dance Part Two because why not? 
you know, we made some of the biggest hits in the world. Let's make those biggest hits again. And was just getting frustrated. The guy he was working with just wouldn't listen. Right. Um, and I, I think maybe you actually hear some of that right. now. Two, two, two different yeah. uh, visions on what the album should be. But um, Bowie wanted to make a album that kind of celebrated, you know, his... It, it, there was one particular song. I Mark has said before that the album's like a wedding present to him on, and it probably is in a way. One song was a wedding present, um, and uh, but the rest of the the album was like more just influenced by his state of mind at that time, and uh, and then three songs were actually originally string arrangements that he composed for the wedding, and then they fleshed out into more like technotronic uh, dance songs. Yeah, they. When he got married, she's a Muslim, he's a Protestant, not practicing, and they were getting married in Italy. And so he, he said, you know, I can't straight up do any kind of a religious-based music here. So he wrote some of the music for his own wedding, and he took those and, like you said, made them into three songs around the right. album. Um, yeah, the album could have easily been called The Wedding Present if you, if you, if you wanted it to. Yeah. Uh, Black Tie, White Noise becomes almost a pun in the way it's used for the record. So yeah. So before we go into further detail on the record, uh, what was the year of 1993 and popular and political and whatever the culture was, we may have covered a little bit of that when our, we did our nine inch nails episode. Um, I think 91 was probably the closest we got. And then of course, 94 for downward spiral, but if you didn't listen to that season, what do you got for me in 93, Eric? couple of big big politics probably biggest international politics was apartheid finally came to an official end in south africa this year um you know why you know why this album yeah no thank you mark <laughs> i was trying to put the t on the the ball on the t for you though friend of the show bono oh yeah Absolutely. He uh, he had that speech in Rattle and Hum during Silver and Gold uh, where he talked about apartheid and uh, then he had Edge play the blues. So, of course, that solved everything. Well, a, between that between that and uh, the black and white video by Michael Jackson from a few years before, they solved everything. Yeah. We're living in a post-apartheid society thanks to those two powerhouses. <laughs> Bono, of course, is not on the naughty list, uh, but... Uh, Yes, may he forever reign. But continue, Eric. Right. So one funny pop culture moment was um, the uh, the Webster's Dictionary uh, accepted the word "death" D E F into into their uh, into, as 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 an official word. And in response to that, Rick Rubin held an actual funeral with a casket where he put the word "death" inside of it, and lowered it into the ground to be buried. In a response to it be ever becoming standardized. And uh, Tom Petty, Flea, and friend of season one, Trent Reznor, all attended this fake funeral to say goodbye to the word death. Wow. 
That sounds an exhausting <laughs> thing to go to because man, it's a professional response. The man co-opted it, huh? That's right. Some of our uh, big quotes. Russell Simmons was not invited. He was raking <laughs> yeah. it in. Yeah. Uh, quotes, uh, big quotes. The truth is out there. X-Files was huge. This we also have, uh, what was this, 93? So we got uh, Bill Clinton was the president. Oh, Bill Clinton's been in the news this weekend. I mean, uh, so yeah, someone was arrested, Jeffrey Epstein, who was a billionaire, who uh, definitely liked to play both sides, big friend of Donald Trump and, of course, a friend of Bill Clinton. Uh, guilty for, well, alleged guilty at this point, but he's been arrested for sex trafficking of minors. Bad guy, bad, bad, bad guy. And now people on the right are being like, well, uh, let's see if Bill Clinton gets implicated. But uh, not really remembering the fact that good old uh, President Pancakes is definitely a big friend of uh, this guy, too. So who knows? Yeah, hey, but, You know, listen, I don't care who somebody is. If they're a pedophile, throw them in jail. Maybe kill them. I don't care. Exactly. I don't care what, don't care what they've done in the past. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't count. It doesn't No matter how much. Listen. If we learn that, uh, I don't want to use him, but if if if, if we learn that uh, Paul McCartney was a pedophile, I'd be like, well, Paul, into the gulag. It doesn't matter. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have a Ronald Reagan like some of the folks on the right side of politics like lionize and make him see like the, be the savior. Um, I mean, I, I just don't, so I don't really feel like it's a personal attack when they say, well, what about Bill? I, this whole whataboutism, you give two fucks, man. If you're a bad person, you deserve to rot in hell. But Anyways, that's an Eric. aside, yeah. <laughs> On a lighter <laughs> note, who was the top number one sex symbol? <laughs> Funny enough, Bill Clinton. <laughs> until 1993. <laughs> until 93, women were banned from wearing pants on the U.S. Senate floor. So 93 gave them permission to wear their pants. Don't worry. That'll be rolled back yeah. soon. Yeah. The way things are going. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Chevy Chase had his own late night show. And it lasted five weeks. Good old Chevy. <laughs> did you guys ever watch the Chevy Chase show? I didn't. Was it on Fox? I think it was on Fox. Yeah. He, I, uh, it was kind of like if Paul Schaefer got his own talk show. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Uh, leave it. All right, so here's some top shows. 60 Minutes, Home Improvement, Seinfeld, Roseanne, Frasier, Murphy Brown. These are all these are all great. These are great shows. Yeah, well, three of them. <laughs> yeah. Seinfeld. Seinfeld holds up. I rewatched the uh, the Marine Biologist episode yeah. recently. One of the greatest. It's a great one. Like all a time. old man trying to return soup from a deli. <laughs> A hole in one, huh? That line always did. <laughs> and then uh, we all know that Frasier's a perfect sitcom. Sure. And uh, Ro Roseanne, when it was operating at the top of its powers, good show. Yeah. No, I don't know what happened to Roseanne. She hasn't been heard of heard from in years. I know. I I don't know. I mean, hopefully she's okay wherever she's at. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so big uh, music of this year. Uh, Death Death Row Records is blowing up. Dre and Snoop, top of the world. Um, we also had Soul Asylum, and uh, of course, you know this. This is prime Nirvana time. 
uh, this year, although I don't think they released an album in 93. Or wait, no, yeah, 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 in utero. In yeah, utero. I think this was yeah. uh, yeah. utero That's years. Right. Yeah. I thought you were a super fan. <laughs> I, yes, I am. So, by, so at, our, at our 4th of July party, it was special, it was requested of me to make my set list all classic rock because our next door neighbor, and you know the proximity of my houses, um, she was having a party too, and she's our friend, and we go back and forth between the, you know, the two. I, as I affectionately call her Blanche, you know, um, she said, "Yeah, I'm gonna, like, you know, can we just listen to classic rock?" I said, That's fine. And so I, I, I put together a, a set list that had all the stuff that one of the three of us would put on a classic rock set list, and I also made sure to leave the Eagles off of it. But um, the one contemporary artist I snuck on there was Nirvana's Unplugged album. Nice. There you go. Nicely yeah. done. That's always a crowd favorite, no matter the age group. Oh, it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson, big years for them. Mariah Carey. Uh, so uh, that was music. Um, oh, yeah. And a little uh, reggae group called UB40. Yeah. Huh. Oh, UB40 and us three, are they anywhere on the right, charts right us, now? This has definitely been the year of us three, for sure. That's right. Dip, trip, flip, fantastic. <laughs> what? That, that will not be the last time we talk about UB40 tonight. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, oh, yeah, that was their song, Can't Help Falling in Love, um, <clears throat> from the film Sliver. You guys ever seen Sliver? <laughs> yes, it was trying to capture the the uh, the eroticism of uh, Basic Instinct, and it was this is also for, uh, kind of on our last episode how Cool World was a response to the success of Roger Rabbit. Basic Instinct started this whole boom of sexual erotica mystery thrillers, and Sliver fit right in there. Sharon Stone. Uh, definitely getting typecast and Billy Baldwin Ooh. doing his yep. thing. <laughs> Listen, but I don't think any of us had a problem with that uh, wave of movies <laughs> as bad as they were. <laughs> hey, we were at the the right age for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, top films. Um, we had Pelican Brief. We had Cliffhanger. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle. The Fugitive. And of course... Jurassic Park. Yep. Absolutely. And you know, uh, because it was July 4th weekend, as all Patriots do, you watch Jaws because, you know, you do. And Jaws is the template for all of those movies that, well, of course, Steven Spielberg did Jurassic Park, but there's a straight through line. You just replace the the shark with the dinosaurs and you got yourself a stew going. <laughs> uh, that movie is perfect. Anytime... Robert Shaw's uh, Quint character is talking. I have to put the kids, uh, make sure that they're being quiet because I, I have to hear it. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm a good yeah. dad. In, in addition to that, in addition, that perfect film, and it is a perfect movie. I know it's cliche to say it's perfect, but guess what? When something's perfect, it's okay to say it's right. perfect. And, uh, you know, also, though, I mean, Dreyfus is great in it. 
and um, friend of the show whose name is escaping me right now that was also in the Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider. Yeah, Schreider. He's awesome. Scheider. Yeah. Schreider. Yeah. No, he's a. He's great. Sheriff Brody. Just. There's a shot in that movie that I always think of. It's a very Hitchcockian, Hitchcockian shot. When he's on the beach. Exactly. Yep. And they do, they do the force perspective pulling. Oh yeah. That is uh that that's I think Spielberg was doing that and he learned that from watching Hitchcock films. Yeah, yeah. and it's right on it's right on Brody just you know his eyes bugging out and he jumps up. Oh yeah. Right. Good of course. Of course that God, didn't come out in 1993, you know but Jurassic Park did and that's what got us there. Yeah. Yes. And Jurassic Park is a goddamn masterpiece and anybody that says differently doesn't have a childhood. Yeah. Hold on to your butts. It's ah ah ah. It, that movie is just so goddamn good. Has if Newman just, in it. Sam Neill, Jeff Goldblum looking sexy. It's great. I mean, if we want to get back to what were we doing that year? What we were doing is our parents took us to see that movie. In the scene where they drive up, and the Allosauruses pop up for the first time, and you hear them before you see them, and then the Jurassic Park theme song kicks in. <laughs> the greatest thing. The history of the world. Sam Neill taking his glasses off, getting out of the Jeep. <laughs> yeah. We all felt the connection of imagination and emotion at the same time, and it was a beautiful moment. Yes. Yeah. And to go back to uh, Star Wars for just a second, that's what inspired George Lucas to finally get off his ass and start to work on making the prequels. Huh. So. Do we deduct points for that? <laughs> uh, they were killing younglings. Okay. Um, so, 93. Uh, what else in the world of sports? In the wide world of sports, Stephen? Oh, what do you got? I hear that music coming. It is. Yes. Uh, sports. I can tell you right now, in the, uh, the professional world of real sports right now, Kawhi Leonard decided to sign with the LA Clippers in the year 2019 and has disrupted the whole landscape of basketball for the better. Thank you, Kawhi Leonard. But back in 1993, the Chicago Bulls beat the Phoenix Suns to complete their first three-peat of the decade. Uh, Michael Jordan shortly retired afterwards and went and played minor league baseball with the, the White Sox. No one ever really knows why he made that choice. Mark Gambling. Went, think so I, do. I don't yeah. know it's weird I, I maybe it was also because I think it was around this time that Michael Jordan's dad was shot in a rest uh, rest stop so maybe he was just like I can't focus on uh, doing that but there has been uh, probably some articles a lot of ink been spilled by the fact that you know Michael Jordan had a gambling problem it was kind of coincidental also I think it was coincidental that his dad was shot around that time that maybe that tied to gambling Right. Who knows? I don't know. Here's what I do know. Michael Jordan, as much as I loved him as a kid, and I still love his ability today, man, turns out he was a total asshole. Yeah, I heard that too. But one of the greatest of all time, Mr. Jordan. Sometimes you can't meet your heroes, but uh, I'm sure LeBron James ain't the nicest guy, but he does do a lot for his community. And, And, you know, he's been with his high school sweetheart, seems like a good dad. And just in comparison, I'm not comparing LeBron to Michael Jordan. I'm just saying in terms of uh, once-in-a-lifetime athletes that really are uh, a face of the game, I would say LeBron is that. 
Yes, I um he is. There's many other podcasts that will use many other words to argue about it, but not tonight. Yeah. I love LeBron. I also know that LeBron is trying to get Space Jam 2 off the ground, which reminds me, we didn't talk about Space Jam 1 at all in our Cool World episode. Oh, God damn it. That would have been perfect. <laughs> missed, missed opportunity. Did you guys see Cool... Or, uh, I'm sorry, Space Jam? I've never seen Space Jam, and here's why. Because that goddamn R. Kelly song scared me away from it. I was like, that... I don't... And, and plus, you know, I was a cool little, like, kid that uh, was going to see cool world because it had some sexy cartoons in it. I didn't need to go backwards and see like the WB characters, you know, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think Winston J frog or the hell his name was. <laughs> <in> it, <but. laughs> um, I also think we were a little bit too old for maybe just slightly too old for it. When it, when it yeah. I didn't out. see it. And I think I saw it. There was like, like a substitute teacher in school one day and she like put it on Dallas Cowboys beat the Buffalo bills. Man, they they whomped them, fifty-two to seventeen in the Super Bowl. Yeah, Super Bowl twenty-seven. Well, let's see what's going on over here in baseball. Well, I can tell you that this is the first year that the Colorado Rockies and the Miami Marlins played their they uh, entered the the fray. Uh, they were known as the Florida Marlins back then, but yes, yeah, two of my least favorite expansion teams. Yeah, not a fan. They they've never had decent color schemes. It's always been purple and orange and, and then they've got the marlins with their teal and their or it's just uh it's a it's a shit show it's ugly i'll give i'll give the rockies this they have that dinosaur mascot i like him yeah his name is dinger and uh the blue jays beat the phillies there you go oh that's right it was the joe carter walk-off um he hit a home run and walked off uh, to win the entire world series i think in game seven or something that was all only the second walk-off in the World Series ever. Yeah. Second walk home run, that is. Yep. That's exciting. It, would, it can't get much better than that. No. Yeah, I wasn't watching baseball at this time because it was... Uh... Oh, no, I think this was pre-strike. I think 94 was the strike. Um, and 94 could have potentially have been the Expos year because they were on a freight train to a, uh, to a championship title. And then the season was stopped short. And who knows if the strike never happened and the Expos won a series, they could have still been up there and never have moved to Washington to become the Nationals. And the Nationals have not won anything. Nope. Hey, I, I read a good article this weekend about your uh, your buddy Kruko. Krukow? Yeah, he's uh, got some illness. I think he's, I don't know. What did it say? Oh no! It's like a it's it's a, a de degenerative muscular disorder. Of That's some it. Sort. That's it. Yep. <laughs> it's all about his service dog named Patriot. It's a really really nicely written piece. It's good stuff. Yeah, he's yeah. a good man. Uh, if you're not a Giants fan, I hope that you could at least appreciate the broadcasting talent and skill of uh, Dwayne Kuyper and Mike Krukow. They are the best in the business, if you ask they me. They are. They are the gold standard. Yeah. All right. Well, Eric, yeah. are you awake? Oh, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> All right. So without, without further, further ado, let's take a break and let's say, let's, let's, let's uh, dive into what the critics were saying. And then let's dive into what we're saying about this album. It's that time again. It's the shilling time. Where we remind you, 
you'd like to, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash pod like a hole. I realized tonight that even though we have this Patreon, that at the actual Patreon page, we don't really post anything. And uh, frankly, I don't understand how podcasts would post there because aren't the podcasts available everywhere else, like all your podcast catchers and your iTunes? And no, not Spotify. I don't know if we'll ever be on Spotify. If you guys want uh, some quieter podcasts, it'll be on Spotify. But you can find it everywhere else. Anyhow, we have two new patrons since we last spoke. Michael Konamos. Michael is a best friend of the show. He often has many opinions about what we're talking about, and we're always happy to hear them. And he seems to be a pretty good individual. The other user is uh, Paul Radke. And this gentleman we were speaking about, we stumbled into on Twitter. And this brave soul apparently has listened to every episode of the Nine Inch Nails era and the David Bowie podcast in like the last two weeks. The guy is an animal. I, uh, he's made of sterner stuff than you and I, I can tell you that. I, I don't want to hear the three of us talk that much. I can hardly, when, it, when it's my turn to edit these episodes, it is a trial, I tell you. Listening to Eric talk again. Especially when we're doing an episode like this about an album as middling as Black Tie White Noise. But, uh, better episodes to come as far as the records we'll be discussing. As maybe you'll learn later. We'll see. Anyhow, Michael and Paul, thank you again. We appreciate your patronage and your listenership. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash pod like a hole. And... Let's get back to the episode. All right. So we are back. And it's time for the Jay Sherman roundup of Black Tie White Noise, the first of two full-length David Bowie albums we'll be talking about tonight. That's right, everyone. We will also be speaking about Buddha of Suburbia afterwards. So this album... Its reviews were middling at best, I think. I poked around, and you're getting a lot of two, two, two stars, maybe three if you're lucky. Entertainment Weekly gave it a D. Um, uh, uh, Chicago Tribune gave it two and a half stars. Rolling Stone, which I'm learning seems to, unless you're talking about Diamond Dogs, grade really high on Bowie, did give it four out of five stars. And what's interesting about what Rolling Stone said is I will quote it verbatim. Black tie white noise brings a thin white Duke back with one of the smartest records of a very smart career. It's also <laughs> Bowie's, it's also Bowie's blackest sound yet. In the wake of the LA riots amid the triumph of rap and African-American film, turning soul word is savvy. And Bowie has also been secure enough to expand his inner vision when the world shifts. His marriage to Iman, supermodel, but even so a Somali, may also have provided non-Western inspiration. Yet, what's remarkable about this new record is how deeply Bowie mines the black mother load while never conceding his own personality. With no wannabe sentimentality, he confronts and incorporates the music that remains pop's edgiest source. So, I'm, the way this guy wrote this to me, 
It sounds almost like he literally said, like David Bowie strip mined the black sound. And uh, that's kind of a bold way to put it. Yeah. What do you guys think? Yeah. I, uh, I am very surprised by that effervescent um, review of, of this record. Um, I'm not going to give my feelings away quite yet, but I do agree with most of the uh, criticisms on this record that it tried hard to do something creative for the time frame that it, it fell in, um, but it never quite executed on its promise. And I don't know, I think this, the writer was Paul Evans from uh, Rolling Stone that said this. And it would be interesting to see some of his other reviews on other records, not so much David Bowie, but just what his benchmark was for what was considered a smart album. Um, I, yeah, I, there's no spoiler by saying I'm not as uh, enthusiastic about this record. Uh, I don't hate it, but uh, we'll we'll get into that. I just find it interesting that, <laughs> I mean, this uh, 1993 was actually a very long time ago. I don't think you could get away with saying how deeply Bowie mines the black mother load. Right. In age. It's a, that's, that is some loaded terminology. No, I was just going to say, I, I, I think, I think he's right in what the positive spin on that, which was that Bowie keeps, he's, there's no posturing going on. He's pretty much himself. In fact, in some ways, it's like his most real, like real self, like on an album that he's ever done. But, um, but as far as like being influenced by, you know, black music, I don't know if you would say this more than, I mean, acid jazz was the biggest influence and half of that, half of those artists were like, were Brits that were making that. So, um, anyways, uh, I don't know if I totally agree with him there and definitely, yeah, his messaging is full of trigger warnings. So. Yeah, it's like celebrating co-opting a yeah. black culture, which is, yeah, I mean, in this day and age, that's not something to be celebrated. Like, uh, I mean, it, there's no, I don't think there's any controversy in saying that Bowie was a sponge for what was popular and he would try to filter that out and put it through his own um, sound. Yes. I mean, Bowie was obviously a big fan of music and pop culture. And he'd like to absorb that and then, you know, uh, created something out of his own. But I think someone just unabashedly, enthusiastically saying he's co-opting black culture. And in that great, I, I think that is kind of like, whoa, yeah, that's not something that we talk about today, but maybe during that time. I mean, race relations were not at that great. I mean, L.A. was, you know, in the midst of their riots with the Rodney King situation down there. I mean, and uh, for him to kind of, in a tone deaf way, say, "Isn't that isn't this pretty neat that Bowie's yeah. trying to do something that uh, could potentially try to identify with the black culture?" Um, where I don't think David Bowie was trying to do that, I think that he was just inspired by what Eric was saying—the acid jazz, house music, um, and you know, soul and R and B has always been in Bowie's oh, yeah. DNA. You know. And also, he's I, he's I, I've mentioned this before. If you go through the entire list of uh, creative partners and band members, there's probably about as many through, throughout, like back to the early '70s, to when he died. There's about an even split, I'd say, of African and African American uh, band members as there is uh, white ones. 
And so, you know, this guy just to be like, hey, you know, he's really he's really decided to really get to the black sound right now. What a uh, what a what a canny, canny observer of pop music Bowie is. It's kind of it's like he said, the guy's been paying attention. Right. But, uh, right. Yeah. So some of the some of the stuff uh, we actually got a decent amount of some of our listeners responding. Uh, my, Michael Konomos Kino- <clears throat> basically just said that, you know, there are. There's at least two real naders to pass through after this one. This is definitely one of them. Hopefully the rest of them get spread out. So, yeah, that's... Yeah. Uh... Uh, Jason Oberg had a pretty good quote. Uh, so he's he's over on our... He's comments with us over on Facebook. He's actually done did a pretty funny uh, meme for us recently. But uh, he uh, he basically said he accidentally listened to the extras disc, thinking it was the actual black tie white noise and um thought it was so terrible that when he actually listened to the regular album he thought it was better just by comparison but um really overall this album and i quote is like soft core porn in a rice cake factory <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but yeah um, yeah over on over on twitter twitter red alert 33 said first listened in a few years and it's better than i can remember that's the best I can say for now. <laughs> and uh, over over on Instagram, Nikki Nichols said he considers this to be the absolute worst Bowie album. There isn't a standout track that would crack his top 100. The four cover songs are pretty lazy, and a grand return for Mick Ronson is wasted on one of those. I highly recommend the absolutely cringy promo video that was made for the album, Bowie could not possibly do a worse job of lip syncing to these selections that look to be filmed on the same stage on the same day. <laughs> I think it's true. And uh, a, a user named uh, Nin Shirts said the jump they say in Miracle Goodnight are the standout tracks. And he also happens to enjoy the videos for those tracks. Uh, jump they say has those 2001 references and Bowie looks good in that suit. I also love Bowie's facial expressions on Midnight Goodnight and uh, Moonlight Goodnight. Miracle Goodnight, good God. And I agree. And we'll talk more about that video later. 1992. The Wedding. Excuse me, coming through. Pardon me. Excuse me, Yoko. Sorry. Sorry, Bono. Sorry. Hey, Yoko Bono. Get it? <laughs> I'm just going to climb up on the stage here. Uh, excuse me. Uh, Dave, I'm going to take that mic from you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Is this thing on? Hey, uh... Uh, sorry to uh, to interrupt your wedding speech there, pal. Uh, my wedding invitation must have got lost in the mail. <laughs> hey, everybody, looking at the most beautiful couple, the most beautiful bride and groom in history, David and Mon. Yeah, let's give them a hand, because we're so fucking happy for them. Hey. <laughs> Tony, are you acting this boorishly because of Niall? No, it's not about that, Dave. Hey, don't bring that up. Okay, listen. No. No, no, no. I, I need to be here, okay? Listen, uh, these people need to hear a story about ten years ago. Tony, we've discussed this before. Ten years ago was a long time ago. It may as well have been yesterday for how important it is, but it was ten years ago. 
No, I think I'm going to tell them this story, Dave. They need to hear it. They need to hear about the, the person they're celebrating here. See, Dave and I, we just got done making Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, a, a huge album, a huge album that, uh, that garnished him a lot of attention, one of his most critically acclaimed albums of all time, one he keeps bringing up and saying he's going to make his next Scary Monsters, he's going to make his next... And listen, it's because that album was so good. And so we're going to go. We're, we're going to make... We're going to do it again. And I set aside studio time. I set aside uh, the band is all ready to go. And I get a call from his people. And they say, hey, sorry, Dave's not going to make the album with you. He's already going to make it with Niles fucking Rogers. Oh, can you believe that? Oh. Well, yes, you know, I do think everyone here can believe that. Because many of us became friends from those danceable tunes on Let's Dance. A fine record. And frankly, I'd like to make more friends. Wouldn't you agree? That's a great idea. More friendship due to danceable tunes with the ear of what's now. What's now. Sometimes, yes, you can go up the hill backwards if you want, Tony. Sometimes you can scream like a baby, and we did. But other times you just have to enjoy the wedding. So I was mad, okay? I was very mad. And I, I said I wasn't going to work with you anymore. Yeah, I know what I said, Dave, okay? I know what I said. Uh, but, you know, here we are. He's getting married. No invitation. Well, I'll be honest with you, old friend. The reason you may not have got an invitation is because this is a black tie event. And lately, whenever you and I are speaking, all I'm hearing is white noise. Frankly... Black ties don't mix with white noise. Black tie, white noise, no that. Wait a minute. We might be on to something here. All, all that aside, d despite the communication breakdowns, the bungalow in 1983, I am having so much trouble to this day forgiving you. And considering all of the bungalows that Iman owns, how can I trust you being around the two of us at our wedding? Yeah, I know. I know what I did. I, I didn't burn it all down, okay? Oh, and well, the incident with the Quackenbush Choir? I didn't. I, I definitely didn't do that. No. Well, I that happened unintentionally. I was mad, okay? And now he's making a new album. No invitation. And now listen, I don't know acid jazz from, uh, I don't know acid jazz from a sulfuric acid, okay? I don't know what that is, but hey, it would be nice to be there. You got the old, you got Garson back, you got some of the old chums. It would be nice to have been a part of that. Yes, and you know what? Even Mick is coming along again, who I don't know when the last time you've spoken to him it was, but I believe that something happened down there on Yancey Street, and ever since, he hasn't wanted anything to do with you. So it's not just me, Tony. You truly are. I know, Dave. I just, uh, I'm a little upset, okay? Listen, I'm a little upset. And, I, and here we are with your wedding. What did I have to do to get on the stage here, right? I had to go borrow one of the caterers' shirt after I knocked him out in the back room, put it on, get drunk with the rest of the caterers, act like I'm working here, then I come up on stage to crash your wedding. I don't want to do that, but you're, making, you're forcing my hand, Dave. Uh, Balderdash, you're forcing your own hand again. And you're acting like some kind of heathen. And I think, you know, in the interest of friendship in front of everyone, it's best that right now everyone sees us take an amicable break. 
I'm not saying that I won't give you any phone calls if I get into drum and bass or something. But maybe another ten years off will, will do us right. And then we'll get back to making the hits again. Together! Alright, maybe you're right. Yep, we'll take some time. Okay? We'll take some time. Maybe we can work together again. Maybe we can figure it out. Get that old magic back in the same room. I mean, I look, look, what's happening? Look out here. See a bunch of, I look what they're wearing, look at the noise I'm making, and I see some black ties, I'm making some white noise. I, hey, wait a minute. New album. And I think you got yourself, whoa, oh, fell off the stage. All right, everyone. That was my old friend, Tony. Let's do give him a hand. He does try so hard. Well, in the spirit of my new album, I'd like for all of us to listen to UB40. song it's because it it is uh the wedding and the wedding song book and this album they're two it's basically a piece of original music that he wrote for his actual wedding to amon um he originally wrote it just as just the strings and then um uh oh and the song uh, palace athena as well so those three songs and it was really originally just the strings and for the wedding but then later he liked his composition he added a little um Acid jazz backbeat to it, and uh, expanded on the wedding song to uh, the wedding to make the wedding song, which was then had uh, some lyrics and got gets kind of bigger and has a, a bigger beat. Um, so that's kind of the background on this song. Uh, I think I, I mentioned it enough. I'm just just really quick just to talk about the burgeoning uh, genre of acid jazz. Um, acid jazz was basically two different points of view. There were these UK producers um, that were making this very electronic acid jazz. Um, what's notable about that sound is the, the beat sounds like a early 90s techno beat. A lot of cymbals, a lot of like of, of really tinny sounding cymbals and um, and a really like uh, upbeat kind of fast beat uh, with the bass hitting like, like a house song, but not as harsh. Um, and uh, in the UK, people like Mondo Grosso and Goda were doing acid jazz. In the US, the names um, like uh, jazz musician Branford Marsalis, Diggable Planets, um, uh, Guru from the Gangstar group did the Jazzmatazz albums. Um, and then eventually it either turned into more of a techno or like almost honestly like Muzak easy listening sound, or it turned into Neo Soul. Um, which would be like your Erica Badu's and your um, and your more like uh, kind of funky soul approach to hip hop and R and B. 
Um, and then the band Medeski, Martin, and Wood were a jam band that took on acid jazz for their improvisational sense. So it, it was kind of a flash of the pan genre, but um, really connected to 90s UK techno and electronic. This is definitely a case where Joe Vieira would have been a great guest for this episode. <laughs> but he probably, yeah, actually, Eric, you did a great job summarizing it. But I'm sure he actually listened to half of that stuff you mentioned. Whereas I don't think many of us did. Um, I have to say that this track gives me a vibe that I am going to say a lot of this album gives me, where I'm reminded of the artist PM Dawn. Yeah, I could see that. I didn't listen to a lot of PM Dawn. I've heard that uh, they are very well respected for what they do, um, but it's never been something. I, I think it was the Jesus overtones that kind of scared me away. I don't even remember those, but I'm not surprised. Uh, it's music to be made sitting on a beach, uh, maybe in the Caribbean, and you absolutely just want to have your brain massaged by good vibes. And uh, until that sax blast in this damn song, that's what you get. <laughs> well, but it is. Yeah. It does have an electronic kind of like backbeat. PM Don did, and then uh, there's a there's a big guy with the. He always wore a beret, I think. Uh, or a fez or something like that. Yeah, I always remember what the, I think it was a beret. Yeah, I think it yeah, was. I remember what they, but they, what, yeah, and it had a little bit of a, you know, soul kind of thing, but definitely the background was, was, was dance. And, that, and um, that's, that's what I'm feeling on this song until, and this is going to come back time and time again. And even, even Nile Rogers said, David Bowie can play the saxophone, but sometimes maybe should he? And uh, <laughs> yeah, he, sure. he, he, he wields it, uh, not as a traditional sax player on this record. But they're just like he paints. He paints the songs with sax blasts, and that's right. Yeah, definitely happens in this track, and it it kind of it it, it it jars you out of the relaxing vibe that I think right. you were trying to go for. Maybe you did that yeah. on purpose. Yeah. And what, what, one more thing on on acid jazz. I didn't. I was about three years after '93. I was heavy into electronic music and really trying to check some stuff out. So I did look into some of it. And the stuff I heard all sounded like elevator music to me. It was all very lightweight, but that was years after it. I bet I bet if I had dug for it, there would be really good stuff. I will say the more like rap end of it, like Jazzmatazz and um, some of that stuff that became neo soul, I think is all very respectable music that I you know that I that I did enjoy when I was into rap uh, uh, in the in the late nineties. Um, but anyways, yeah. I, as far as the song goes. It's a, I, it doesn't turn me off. I'll tell you that when I listen to it, it's just kind of like, okay, this is his new sound, and here's a little intro. I don't know. Yeah, and, and they're doing the same thing, like you said, that they do on Scary Monsters, where on uh, the wedding and then the wedding opens and closes, and yeah. a few different versions of it. And on Scary Monsters, they did Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, and then, or, I'm sorry, um, up the hill, up backwards. The hill backwards. Up the hill backwards. No, 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 it wasn't up to that. Was track two. Scary Monsters oh. opens with It's No Game. It's No Game. Yeah. God damn and it. And the yeah. both versions, they're they're much more different to each other than these two are. But it did remind me of two things I wanted to bring up, and I might as well bring them up now. I swear, every time I've read about an album since Scary Monsters, he always says, I, you know what? This is my this is the best I've done since Scary Monsters. I think it reminds me of Scary Monsters. <laughs> it's that, true. <laughs> he said that for Never Let Me Down. He said that for this album. And I bet you he probably says it for outside and Tin Machine, but um, it just that makes that, that like he always says that, and it reminds me actually at my job 
when a project gets turned over from sales to the team, we always have these meetings on the phone with sales. And we always ask, hey, what kind of client is this? Every time they always say, oh, he's an easygoing guy. Every time, no matter which sales rep it is, it's always, ah, he's an easygoing guy. And uh, that repetition just reminded me, like whenever David Bowie gets asked about his new record, he would say, it's the best thing since Scary Monsters. Every time. <laughs> it's a, it's hey, it's good it's good uh it's good it's good promo right there yeah. anyhow uh, eric and i said everything we could mark how do you feel about the opener so um this black tie white noise this album um this was the last bowie album that i needed to collect when i was uh, collecting all of them on cd i didn't have a very good uh feeling about this one because it was on a really lo- uh, lesser known Record label, Savage, uh, which are still... This is the only record he ever released on Savage Records. The album cover was also reminiscent of what Phil Collins or any stupid... um, I don't know, just his face and extreme close-up. It just really reminded me of something of... uh, This is going to be not his greatest work. And then I put this song on, and um, it's an instrumental song that sounded... Even uh, when I first heard it, it was kind of in the mid-2000s. And I was like, man, this sounds super dated. Um, and I, my first impression of this album when I first heard it is I hated it. I thought it was stupid garbage and just kind of like what some of our listeners said. Um, but with that said, having digging into this album further, um, it's, it's, it's got some gems. I'm listening to it with a more discerning ear. This song, the first song, The Wedding, goes on way too long, if you ask me. It's it's five minutes. Uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, really overextended electronic music, um, which this is. It's trying to be what Eric said, acid jazz, or a little bit of like, uh, yeah, it's more acid jazz, maybe fusion, whatever he's trying to do here. But those saxophone blasts just uh, don't really do it for me. Hey, if I was to listen to this album again, um, so I listened to it three times all the way through. Uh, when I was preparing for tonight's recording, I just needed to hear five seconds before. It's an instant skipper for me. Um, I understand the th- him setting the scene, but going on for five minutes plus is just not a way to do it for me. Um, oh yeah, especially yeah. since he's going to come back to it at the end. No, it could have been. Yeah, it could have been two minutes. It could have been actually. It would have been great if it was just. If it was just the string part and then yeah. and then for like a minute and a half or two minutes just as like a, as like the band's warming up in the pit and then actually do the song this way like you wanted to for that for the closer since it's the same basic bones to both songs it's not bad because i can look past the dated production and um but i i just can't get past how long it takes to just get through it it just doesn't interest me. It's very bland. Um, and it's not really setting the tone for me to actually sit down and really want to enjoy this record. It's like, okay, is this going to be a fucking chore to get through this album? Um, but yeah, not a fan of first track. It's not terrible, but it's just poor choices were made, in my opinion. Yeah. I'll just say a little something about the production quality. Um, I'm going to do this again in another, I mean, I'm not going to do this I- anymore. I'll just get it out of the way now. But like uh, when I, I said, it's kind of fits the, what I, when I explored acid jazz when I was younger, when I thought it was very soft sounding, it didn't, it didn't have the, 
any of the hard edge that some other electronic music did, even at that time. Um, the production is very tinny and, um, yeah, there's just not a lot of dynamics to it, which I think holds the whole album back and you can hear it right off the bat on this one. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I I think that it, it mars the entire album. It makes it sound dated in a bad way. I sometimes try like when we listen to records recorded decades ago, you try not to hold when it was recorded against it. If a good song is written, but when it's this plastic sounding and muddy and also I have no other way to describe it, but it makes a lot of the songs sound like they're bad MP3 downloads. Yeah. All right. With that said, let's go into track two, which is you've been around. I mean, this was the first one when I heard it come on and I thought, eh, you know, I think I can probably get through this album because um, his vocal delivery and his his vocal delivery, at least, seems he seems in it and on it more than he did at Never Let Me Down, which is obviously chronologically speaking, the last one we heard from, you know, from him. Like he, like he was, like his his delivery is all pretty good, with a few exceptions that I'll get to. Um, but yeah, the I, the whole time I'm like, and I'm open to acid jazz. You know, I like electronic music. Just you know, you've got to give me some dynamics in there. It's so flat. Um, what's actually happening in the background doesn't bother me so much, but with uh, some some depth to it, some wetter production, I mean, we might be onto something. Uh, but that's what I that's what I think anyways it's got some it's got some elements for a good song and Bowie as far as his vocal delivery and being being dynamic as a singer he's back yeah no I I, I don't want to hold something about the production of the vocals bugs me but it does he does use that lower register again quite a bit which it sounds good here um, the song moves at a brisk pace uh, the bass actually goes for a walk which I do like and there's some uh, well, I don't always like the sax work in this album. There's some uh, little trumpet solos that I, uh, towards the end that work for me, but um, I don't know. It sounds like a, it almost sounds like a, a B side to a late eighties Pink Floyd song to me. You know, it's funny that you say that uh, real fast because it actually does remind me of one of the vocal effects that Dave Gilmore uses on um, momentary lapse of reason it's the song that uh, it's just mostly David Gilmore's vocals. And for the life of me, I should have probably looked it up, but it's the song that um, is right before the last track on momentary lapse of reason, reason, which is sorrow. I brought that, um, I, I brought that song up before when we were yes. talking about, Oh man, we've recorded a lot of songs now or a lot of episodes about a lot of songs. Uh, yeah. Was one, of the Nine Nail, to... was one of the Nine Nails EPs? Maybe. Maybe. A note from the editor. The songs that we are referencing is The New Machine Part 2 off of Pink Floyd's Momentary Lapse of Reason, which has a vocal effect that sounds like this. I will always be 
as well as How to Destroy Angels, How Long, which is off the Welcome Oblivion album, which we discussed on our How to Destroy Angels episode many, many months ago. It's kind of got that underwater robotic effect that it's got going on with David Bowie's vocals. So when I first heard this song, I was like, oh, this is okay. But over and over, uh, after listening to it a couple more times, I'm actually okay with this song, even though it's uh, really doesn't go anywhere. It lacks a hook. It's just a driving like uh, rhythm and melody that goes through it. It has an interesting sound. Um, I think the trumpet is a little tad out of place with the... Uh, the ominous robotic rhythm, but I think that is kind of the template or the the theme that runs through this album is that it's trying to be futuristic, but also have a foot in, you know, jazz. I guess you know that's just what acid jazz is. is. The song was co-written by Reeves uh, Gabriel's, but I I think this song was originally supposed to land on a Tin Machine record. Um, Reeves is not playing guitar on this. It's uh, David Bowie and Nile Rodgers that are doing the guitar work. Um, so I'm okay with this song. Um, I don't love it, but I actually do prefer it on this album compared to some others. That would be the first time I think we brought up Reeves Gabriel on the podcast, isn't it? Yeah. Cause we haven't touched on any of his work beforehand. You are you, know? are you so, sure he didn't solo on the song? I, I'm pretty sure. I, I'm pretty sure that that's the, I mean, anything that I've seen on the internet, has just shown that Niall Rogers and David Bowie are the only people with a guitar. Uh, well, this is just a quote I said, which is that um, one of the most satisfying things about making that particular track was working with Reeves on it because I had the chance because it was my album, not Tim machines to mix Reeves way into the background. So I knew that would da- doubtlessly really irritate him. And it did, which <laughs> so, so according to him, he had Reeves on there playing, but he mixed him way back. So he's not like standing out at all. So basically, took Reeves' song, <laughs> had him had him on the play it, and then mixed him in the background. <laughs> that's funny you mentioned that because that's not the first time I've heard about those two being conscientious to each to each other. Um, no reason. Contentious. contentious. Yes, man. I'm always going to get to listen. I'm not. I'm not my brother. I'm not an English major. Um, but what what Reeves Gabriel? He was probably when I got into David Bowie was the first guitar player I heard about because I was getting into those newer albums. Um, the personnel on this record to get it out of the way, actually, you got David Bowie on vocals, guitar, saxophone, and production, Niall Rogers on production and guitar, Pookie Bell and Sterling Campbell on drums. Sterling Campbell, who, by the way, this was the first album he was on, I believe, and he's a disciple of uh, Dennis Davies. So I like that continuity there. Um, he will end up playing drums in a lot of David Bowie's uh, projects up until the next day. Uh, Barry Campbell and John Regan on bass, Richard Hilton, Dave Richards, Philip Safdie, Richard T on keyboards, Michael Reisman on the harp in the tubular bells, Gerardo Velez percussion, Fonzie Thornton, Tawata Aji, Curtis King, Brenda White King, Merrill Epps background vocals. They will become uh, important on the song Night Flights. I'll be sure. Black tie white noise vocal duet. Reeves Gabriel, lead guitar on You've Been Around. Mick Ronson, lead guitar on I Feel Free. Wild T. Springer, lead guitar on I Know It's Gonna Happen Someday. 
Mike Garson, friend of the show, piano and looking for Lester. That's definitely a song for him. And Lester Bowie, no relation to David Bowie, trumpet on You've Been Around, Jump They Say, Paulus Athena, Don't Let Me Down, Been Down, and Looking for Lester. My God, there's a lot of people on this record. Oh, yeah. and it's, A lot of session musicians. It sounds, it sounds like it. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, it, the song's fine with me, uh, but uh, it, it's clearly not one of his classic songs. Right. And uh, Tony, Tony Visconti, nowhere to be seen. That's true. Yeah. He must have been, uh, he must have been putting together some kind of um, T-Rex best of album or something. I sure hope he was, uh, I sure hope he was invited to the wedding. Oh, I'm sure he was there. Uh, He probably, he probably was the DJ. One remix that goes with this song, and it is very much worth talking about. Uh, it is the Dangers remix, which is Jack Dangers from Meat Beat Manifesto, who we went over in our season one Nothing Records episode. Um, and I am a fan of this remix. Uh, he is uh, Jack Dangers and Meat Beat Manifesto are like very. Uh, they've been in electronic world for a long time, and they've really been on the forefront of a lot of movements. Big beat. Uh, the like resurgence of dub in the late nineties. Um, and he's a really good producer and he adds a lot to this remix where it's essentially very similar to the same song, but you can tell that somebody knows what they're doing on the boards because I mean, not saying Niall doesn't know what he's doing, but this actually is produced like a good electronic song with like symbols that you can hear and big, big bass and, uh, a lot of atmosphere so it's a uh, it's a cool song, and I was very excited to see his name on there because I've been a fan of his for a very long time. Um, so that is one of the few remixes off this whole era that I definitely recommend you checking out. Um, I did think it was funny. I looked it up. Jack Dangers were kind of remembering Bowie the, when he got to hang out with him because Bowie actually insisted they meet before the remix, which is Jack Dangers was like, that never happens. Like Usually like John Byrne says, do a remix for me, and he does it, and or his producer sets it up or something, but Bowie actually wanted to like meet him in a hotel and talk about it. And so, uh, uh, dangers did a few remixes, uh, including one for this and palace Athena. Um, and, uh, he, he liked meeting him, but what I thought was funny is, uh, I think when the studio, they were remixing, uh, suede was recording right next door to him, which is a Britpop band that almost, uh, almost bleeds more into the next thing we'll be talking about after black tie white noise. So, um, anyways, but, uh, I just thought that was a cool story that just for a little remix, they insisted on a hotel meeting. So anyways, yeah, I actually believe the lead singer of suede, uh, interviewed Bowie around this time. And, uh, we'll talk about more about suede when we talk about Buddha suburbia and I'm preparing you, Eric, you're going to be talking the most about them because you probably know more about that band than I do. Better look it up now. Um, so. <laughs> so anyhow, let's hear a little bit of I Feel Free. I 
that was I Feel Free. And if we uh, didn't respect you people, and we did this in a studio setting with YouTube where you could see us, you would see me doing my worst David Bowie, uh, shimmy back and forth, the uh, awkward white guy dance to the opening of this track. I love the way the song starts. <laughs> the way the song starts with that, that kick drum, I just, I get into it, man. I love it. Uh, this is probably the highlight of the album for me. Yeah. So as you were saying, it's a cover of a Cream song. Um, it does have some special meaning for David Bowie. Uh, he went, uh, he had a half brother um, who suffered from schizophrenia, um, among other mental issues. He ended up committing suicide, which we'll talk a little bit more on uh, track five. But he took him to a Cream show. And played, they played this song, I Feel Free. And uh, it became too intense for his brother, Terry, I believe. And they had to go outside. And he kept saying that he kept seeing all of these angels and demons in the sidewalk. And it was just having a episode. And that obviously stuck with David Bowie. And so this song does have some special meaning for him. The song also does feature the return of Mick Ronson on guitar. It's the first time since they've... 1973, since they've actually performed together on record and Mick died like right after this album came out right he did it was like uh, 24 days after the album came out yeah wow so as Steve was saying this sounds much more funkier than the original uh, I put it in my notes that if Peter Gabriel also decided to cover this song this is also probably what it would have sounded like yeah. I'd say the production's better on this one than, than most tracks on here it has a little more jump to it. It has a little more bottom end. Um, there is more dynamics going on. Well, yeah, the bass on this is like part of the reason this is so great is because it has space bass and the space bass doesn't sound plastic. Right. Yeah. I, I think they'd really put a lot of effort into it. I don't know if it's an old, if it's because it's an old uh, Bowie standard, actually. I mean, they, there's not a bunch of re recordings of it, but back in the Spiders days, there's uh, apparently. A, uh, a live bootleg floating out there with a version of it. They, they've worked on this song before. And uh, it was almost, it was almost actually on, um, I think there's a studio version of it recorded or attempted to be recorded during the Scary Monsters era. So. Even even during the Tin Machine era, uh, they 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 noodled it around on stage. So it was high time. Yeah, I I mean I'm with you guys. I think it's it's like up and um my listen up until this point, I haven't been like frustrated with the album, but um, I nothing has stood out yet until now. Now I'm kind of you know I got a I got kind of a they they got a hook in me for a second. Um, the lyrics do kind of thematically, they're just, it's just a love song lyrics. Um, you know, when I dance with you, we move like the sea. You're all I want to know. I feel free. 
Um, anyways, it's, you know, it's, you're the sun, you shine on me. So it's, you know, very sixties love, love song, but, mm-hmm. um, that's where Bowie's head was at the time. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm for it. I mean, I love it. I, I like they got Mick Ronson back just for a minute, unfortunately, before he passed. Um, like he, he, he said, uh, I hope, I, I hope David's album does well. He's put everything into it. I speak to him often. He sounds so positive. Um, the, the Mick Ronson, it's a lot more upbeat in, in, in like forward moving, jaunting down the street than anything they did together back in the seventies. It's a whole different, whole different genre than what they did in the seventies, the way it's recorded. I mean, the original, the original cream song sounds more like something they would have done together. Then this version sounds like it was recorded in the early nineties. Uh, the, the solo at the end of the track is uh, got some great rising action. I, I do have to say, uh, I, 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 I really, I surprisingly, uh, I, I went to this track a lot. I, I dug it. Yeah. It sticks with you. I mean, it's uh, it's a good little uh, cover version. I'm not a huge fan of the original version myself. I'm not a huge fan of cream to be honest with you. Yeah, we we kind of went down that road in a recent episode, but I'm right. I'm you know I'm right there with you. It's just let's not, not right. hold. Let's not hold. All right, listen. <laughs> I know I the sins of Eric Clapton. Thank we can't put on an entire band because you know Jack Bruce. The only guy in that band that wasn't an asshole is Jack Bruce. <laughs> yeah, because uh, the drummer, uh, oh, what was it, Ginger Baker? He was a son of a bitch, um, but he was more of a son of a bitch in the way that Ty Cobb was, which is also kind of a racist. But okay, never mind. Bad now. <laughs> Um, <laughs> just, I mean, um, white room and, uh, is a good song, but I, I can't, uh, sunshine of your love is probably the other song that I know. And I just don't really have a big, uh, background. No, on I, cream I'm not trying to sell yeah. you guys on having the light cream for God's sakes. I just think that when you rank, uh, Eric Clapton stuff that's pushed on you, I, I think cream is much more worthwhile than Derek of the dominoes or his solo work and stuff. That's all blind faith. Oh yeah. Blind yeah. Faith, yes. Hell of an album cover. Um, <laughs> gets you arrested in <laughs> most States, but go for it. Yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, yeah, I'm i I'm good with this song. It's, it's definitely in my top three on this record. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a keeper. Um, so we'll go into track four, uh, Black Tie, White Noise, the self-titled track. There's a lot to say. There's two layers. There's what the song sounds like, and then there's the history of what the song is about, and uh, what he's trying to say, and the whole thing. So I, I'll get to that. But uh, I kind of want to hear what you guys just kind of think of of the sound of the song. It uh, it is in that acid jazz, but I would almost kind of put this more in that um, in like that almost like New Jack Swing kind of thing. The way the the horns kind of blat out. Um, as like the bass kind of slaps and there is like a funky backbeat in the background, um, but production's not helping too much on this song. Um, and then uh, Bowie and, and R&B uh, 
R&B uh, superstar, uh, Alby Sher. Was Alby Sher ever a superstar? I don't think so. I think, I think he was also just in the the camp of like the Tevin Campbells and things well, like yeah, that, you know? Was, he was definitely from the New Jack Swing uh, uh, side of things, which we've all said due to our age and just because some of that music is pretty good, we all enjoy that genre to an extent. But I never got into him when I was younger. Um, I knew he existed, obviously. Um, kind of a younger guy. He went on to produce and discover others more so than I think was known for his own albums, of which he only had like two or three. Right. Yeah, his his album um, that dropped right before this was... Sorry, just give me a second here. Uh, yeah, Sexy Verses. Um, he did that. He had In Effect Mode, I think, was his biggest one, actually. So, yeah, he had fallen off. In Effect was three times platinum, and then Private Times, and then Sexy Verses. Excuse me. No. Diminishing returns, um, and then he did this duet with Bowie, and then didn't make another album until 2009. So, um, but uh, what do you guys think of just the sound of this this song? I don't like it. I think it's uh, the only thing that I appreciate was the funky bass, um, but everything about this song is something that I think is kind of cringy. That's just my impression. That's just my gut talking over here. I think it's okay. I think that the vocal duet between the two of them is pleasing to my ear. They both have great voices. Um, sure. I think I like the message of the song as heavy-handed as it might be more than the song itself. Right. Yeah. So, and we'll get to that in just a second. Um, There's a lot of, you know, and I'll we'll go we'll go there now because okay. you know the background is you know right after they got secretly married before their big wedding, with, with um, they had, they were house shopping in L.A. right after the Rodney King verdict was written, and obviously that was you know big time uh, news for America, uh, especially California. And a, and a riot started out. And I remember watching that on the news as a kid and kind of being very aware of that, but not really understanding it, except it just seemed kind of scary. Um, and Bowie wanted to write a song that was basically like, he was sick of these, like, we are the world, like hold hands and, you know, cross the aisle, races get together. He thought they were cheesy he wanted something that didn't just have a, a catchphrase. He wanted a song that was actually not so much about unity, but like, yeah, you know, black people in America have been getting screwed over by cops, by the legal system, by institutional racism for a long time. They're angry. You know, this is going to happen. This is a part of the process. They need, you know, they need to do this. Like, so he wasn't condemning them at all for the riots. It was actually a pretty woke perspective. And that comes out in the lyrics. Like, yeah, like there's, most definitely going to be some blood. Um, yeah. They even say like, don't kill me over and over again. Right. Like I know I'm not, he's like, you know, if we look each other in the eyes, you're not going to kill me. I'm not going to kill you kind of thing. Yeah. Um, he was definitely trying to write a what's going on to the point where they actually say what's going on. Right. Uh, right, right. Obviously Marvin Gaye's Mar you know, what's going on. Yeah. Um, uh, they are kind of singing over each other a lot. Um, the first time it's jarring, but their voices do sound really nice together that once you just kind of, just kind of go with it. 
it's kind of it's kind of nice um but uh it is the song is a mess there's uh lester bowie does some great like total new jack swing trumpet work on this lester bowie is not related to david bowie at all but uh you know and of course you know david bowie's real last name is david jones so uh yeah his, his sax squelch or no his trumpet squelches are good in this song right but again then david comes in with his sax squelches that i feel do not add anything to the song they sure. just make more disorienting right absolutely and so and, uh, i'll give it i'll give it this much in the video uh when he's doing his sax squelches he he he, he like points his saxophone high to the sky and then he does a pivot and then he points it directly in the next direction and blasts that way. It's almost like he's trying to use the saxophone <laughs> as some kind of a, some kind of weapon to, to fight discrimination. I don't know what, what he, what he, what he said about that video, which that video was directed by Mark Romanek, correct? Yeah. yeah and so. uh, it's like a bunch of urban settings, but they're very stylized. There's like dark, colors and purples, but you got like a torn up couch and you got people hanging out. I'll be sure has got his hood on over his head sitting, you know, Bowie's dancing around in his blue suit and a saxophone. Uh, but he, it was very important to Bowie that in the video, it was like, it wasn't just like, you know, everybody was like doing the same thing. Like he wanted the cultures to be very, you know, specific and there was no assimilation really happening. Like nobody, you know, he wasn't expecting, Bowie wasn't going to start acting like, you know, the, 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 the black LA people that were being portrayed in that video, he was going to dance his way while there was actually some, you know, you know, actually more black American dance styles going on in the, in the background as well. He wasn't, you know, there was going to be no co-opting going on to, to call back that review that we read. So, yeah, no, he's, he's prancing around in his blue suit that he wears in all these damn videos. And, uh, he's looking as rigid and British. He, he looks like he's even trying to be a little bit more, British than usual next to all be sure. Um, and I do, I am amused at the scenes in the videos where they both point at the camera at the same time and sing. Yeah. That's such a nice yeah. thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> point directly at the camera. Yeah. And your vocals. Yeah. I love it. Um, um, it's not, the song's not a crime against humanity, but I was driving around Becky listening to this album yesterday, my wife. Yeah. And when this song came on, she's like, wow, this sounds, you know, she, in so many words, he said, "This sounds the sounds of a time." <laughs> so, right. Yeah. I think his heart was in the right place. I don't think, I don't think this song is uh, is is like particularly embarrassing from a cultural perspective. I think he's, I think he's saying what a lot of people weren't saying back then, which was like, you know, I understand you're angry, but don't riot. And he's like, well, sometimes that's the process. So that's yeah. that. That's that. You know, people have to express themselves. And I, um, I think I appreciate that about him. I like some of the lyrics, you know, the, the opening track about, uh, you know, what does it say? Getting your facts from a Benetton ad. I didn't know what that was, but I guess Benetton was a, uh, company, maybe fashion company or something like that. But their ads always showed this like very almost cheesy, uh, interracial harmony. Um, but it all looked very staged, like, you know, so he was basically just kind of like, that's kind of a reaction to like, well, our, you know, my relationship with my wife isn't like those, like those ads, you know, there's something real going on. Um, the, uh, the, 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 then we'll die in the flames singing. We shall overcome is like kind of like, we don't need a, basically him saying, you know, like we don't need a, a catchphrase kind of thing. 
Um, and then like black tie, white noise, just with the whole album and, you know, is basically, uh, we know what white noise is and it's kind of whatever, I guess, Bowie or is doing, or even something more culturally, but then black tie is like black music kind of ties, ties it all together for Bowie. So that's, that's kind of where he came up with that title in an interview. Or black tie wedding, but yeah. Right. Well, no, there's a, I mean, he would be one to have multiple, multiple, uh, explanations. So I had yeah. a lot to say on that. I actually spent way too long digging into that song. Um, I find that song fascinating. It's not a great song. It really isn't, but I do find it fascinating. And, um, I think it's what it, it's, it's a very interesting song. Anyways, that's all I'll say. That. Well, no, I, I remember, you know, getting back to where were we? I was young enough to be, uh, like, I, I think when the Rodney King riots were going on, that was one of my first times of even thinking about how some people are disenfranchised and how eventually they're going to respond. Um, yeah, I, I didn't, my 12 year old brain didn't think of that too much until around this time. So I think it was it definitely worth, worth trying to write some music that speaks to it. Right. Um, one thing I did find during this research was I do suggest that I'll link it in the show notes that uh, people go out and look up the Jay Leno tonight show era uh, video where it starts with night flights and then they do a little interview and then they come back and play black tie white noise with I'll be sure Uh, the performances of night flights and black tie white noise are both great, but also the interview with Jay Leno, David Bowie is completely in his, as Eric would put it, Twitter pated period still (laughs) Uh, speaking about how he met Iman Iman and uh, how, you know, before dinner was even over, he was already trying to name their kids in his head kind of thing. But midway through the interview and you wouldn't know this because you're watching on YouTube. You didn't, uh, you didn't just, uh, watch the whole show. All of a sudden he says hello to the guy next to him and shakes his hand and the camera cuts over and it's a young Keanu Reeves and Keanu Reeves is just so like stoked that David Bowie just shook his hand. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty fun. It's great. And, uh, right now, since we're all waiting for Bill and Ted, uh, part three to be finished, uh, I can't wait to see the sequel and have it become the greatest trilogy of all time. Anyhow. There you go. <laughs> High hopes. Yeah. Um, there's a, there are so many, uh, remixes to this, this song. Um, I will, I, I will say I listened to every single streaming remix that was out there, but I am I, not going to talk about every single streaming remix that was out there. Do you have to talk about any of them? Uh, I, I just want to kind of say a couple things about this. The extended remix for this song uh, is much better production. It's bigger, um, but it's super long. It's like eight minutes. It's club ready. It's fine. Uh, the third floor remix is also club ready, but uh, really cheesy. Directed by Mark Funky Man Paley. Um, the urban mix really goes to this cut up vocal like the uh, crank get out, cr- cr- crank get out, and it's a little bit more. Um, the production is way, way more on the new Jack Swing hip hop kind of style. I'll be sure gets a lot more out front time. He, they bring his vocals forward and Bowie's back more often. So you can hear his contribution a little bit more, which is interesting. So, um, and there's an acapella, well, acapella and horn version called Bring to Jazz. And that was uh, an entire day worth of commuting so many goddamn miles that got me through uh, all those mixes. Um, Man, I really, Eric, for your sake, I hope the Diamond Dice does better by us tonight. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, Not that this album was terrible, but all the supplemental material you subjected yourself to. My God. I've been having uh, Crank Get Out like like all in my head for a month now. So there's that. All right, let's let's crank it out to the next track, which is Jump They Say. Jump They Say. Uh, this was released as the first single for this record. Um, like what we talked about on track three for I Feel Free, this song is uh, directly about his half-brother Terry, um, who, as I mentioned, suffered from schizophrenia and who eventually committed suicide. Did you, uh, did you read about how uh, he did that? Did he jump off a building or did he... Oh, he laid down on yeah, a train track. I believe he jumped or jumped in front of a train. No, he, he laid his down his head down on a train track and faced away from the train. He no, just waited. Anyways. So kind of like an inception, right. but right. yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, we'll get back to the song in a second. But after his brother killed himself, David uh, really laid low. He didn't have a lot of public statements on it, you know. And that kind of that kind of falls in line with the guy. Like I said before, he's so theatrical... He loves being on the center stage, but at the same time, he can be extremely private and doesn't want to tell you exactly what he's thinking. Um, and that, that falls in line with that. Yeah. Anyhow. Um, I do like this song. Um, this was one of the songs that I gravitated, gravitated to when I first listened to it, my first listen back in the early 2000s. Uh, this was the only one that I actually had some memory that this was on this album. There was an accompanying video uh, which is actually a pretty cool video. Um, David Bowie does some fine work as a corporate person being subjected to almost like a Clockwork Orange type uh, treatment. Right. Um, the music video was also directed by Mark Romanek, who did the closer video as well. And um, Lester Bowie's trumpet really drives the melody uh, throughout the, this song. I like his vocal work. It's a good song. I enjoy it. Got to believe. Sorry. Yes, that's, that's the part. Yeah, yeah. The, got, the got to believes are what get me for this song. Um, I don't remember ever hearing it before I tried to study for this record. Um, might lose a Bowie super fan card here, but I never bought this album. Uh, this is my, my first time really diving into it was for the podcast. Neither did I. Same, I'm the same, same boat as you. Yeah, and it's just because, you know, I always heard it was bad, and I was like, why do I want to buy a bad record? I got 28 other great albums by this guy. Why go? But, uh, no, this, is, this song's pretty good. I remember the name of the song being a single. It has, a, I like that title, Jump They Say. It's a, it's a weird, weird use of words there. Um, yeah, like Mark says, the trumpet. I dig the trumpet. And uh, no, that that got to believe back backup vocals. This album does have a lot of good backup vocals on it, I think, when you can hear them clearly. And on this track, you can. Uh, yeah, I'd, 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 if, 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 if I got the... The good, bad, and the ugly from this one, this album, this falls into the bad category, which means average, which is actually good. So I dig it. What do you think, Eric? 
I, I I'm a big fan of this song. Um, once again, I hadn't I hadn't given it time of day until this project. So, um, I think it's pretty well done. I think this is kind of the moment I realized when I was doing my research. Like, okay, this might be a vanity project because he is making this, uh, you know, as a basically for his wife for his wedding, but it's also one of his most personal albums. Like he's not playing a character in this. He's, uh, he's kind of wearing his heart on his sleeve, which he doesn't do a lot. Although the, uh, the next thing we'll be talking about tonight, uh, it falls in that he, that's the mode he was in for writing. He was very personal. I think there are some great lyrics in here. Like usually in the verses or in the verses in this song, what he's doing is he's talking about, he has no brain. He has no mood. He's talking about how kind of the public refers to people with mental illness um, how you feel, you know, heavily medicated when you're part of that. The pub, basically, the way the public treats you, it's basically like they're asking you to jump. Like they're they're trying to, they, you know, people can be so cold that the support that maybe somebody like that would need to not kill themselves wasn't there. And at some point in the song, Bowie comes out to try to beg him, you know, save your ass, man. Don't listen to him. He tries to go out there and, and bring his brother back in. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a good song. I think it's pretty solid. The video does a lot for me. The video, he's wearing that damn, he's wearing something close to that blue suit. We've been trying to track that blue suit. Yeah. And it seems to be like an anti, you know, don't, don't get yourself sucked into the corporate monster type thing, which I always dig. Uh, it looks like it could have some ties to some of the themes of 1984. Uh, what we talked about in the diamond dogs episode, pretty good video. Yeah. Oh, uh, one thing that's Bowie said about that chorus, uh, about the, the, or at least the, the jump they say part was he's like, yeah. And all that stuff's true about his brother and about the song being about mental illness and how society kind of pushes, you know, suicidal people towards that. But it's also kind of about like, personally for him, it's like, he feels like the, the public also like tells him to jump into the next, you know, thing without really thinking about what it does to him. And so there's also the trappings of, of celebrity pressure and stuff like that, that are also layered in this song as well. So yeah, to the themes of people, uh, society not being able to speak to those that might be on the edge of doing harm to themselves. I have to say that even though social media and the internet has done so much wrong, I do have to say that in the last few years, I like that it seems people are more open to telling others to get help when they need it and not being a stigma is something great. For for whatever good it ever does, you know who knows, but that uh, is important. So before we move into the next track, I wanted to mention that the uh, David Bowie commissioned a interactive CD-ROM. Um, it uh, simply titled "Jump," and it was uh, included the "Jump They Say" video. It included a uh, a chance to remake. Um, and remix Black Tie White Noise to the song and explore a virtual world based on the album, which included hidden animations, pictures, and other surprises. And apparently it was just a, a disaster. Um, I remember kind of in the uh, mid, early to mid-90s, um, interactive enhanced CDs were something that artists were trying to do in order to uh, prevent uh, downloading from happening. Uh, Primus had one for Tales from the Punch. Oh, Bowl. I had that bad boy. That was yeah. fun. Oh, yeah. We all did. <laughs> I, <laughs> I haven't thought about that thing in a long time. And 
If I remember correctly, it was for what it was trying to do. Was it good? Was it okay? It yeah, wasn't bad. It was I mean, it had its moments it where like flash videos uh, for all the songs. Yeah. And I think it maybe had Why Not His Big Brown Beaver on there, the music video for there. Oh, you know what? I think it had Southbound Pachyderm's video on there, too. Yeah, it did. You're right. That video was awesome. It's great. It's Claymation. Claymation. It was great. That that drum roll in that song, put it in the time capsule. It's all-timer. But this one, apparently, even David Bowie hated it. He was like, you know, what I wanted it to be, where just clearly the technology's not there. Um, to do what I had envisioned. Um, but yeah, Jump it inspired and was trying to coincide and obviously try to... It wasn't an enhanced version of Black Tie White Noise. It was an own separate thing that only ran on Windows or Mac. So it was like a interactive CD-ROM that didn't have the whole album on there. But I do find that kind of interesting that at least David Bowie was really trying to embrace technology of the day and really try to do something um, exciting in terms of how he was promoting albums, but it was just a not well received. Well, we will talk about that more oh. <laughs> when we talk about Bo- Bowie Net in a few uh, a few years. And uh, of course, yeah. I've discussed that we'll talk about Omicron, the Nomad Soul, one of these days. So, <laughs> hey, but by, by the way, back, back to Primus. Uh, news hit the wire. We're still not quite clear what it means. I think it might be a tour. Something it might be a collaboration. But for some reason, Slayer, Primus, and Ministry are all doing something together. Sounds great. So stay tuned. Yeah, sounds great. Stay tuned. Uh, oh, and uh, I'll just say there's a lot of remixes for this one also, including a rock remix, which sounds almost like reality era. Uh, Steve, did you listen to that one? I did not. I, Eric, I didn't listen to any of the remixes. That's I'm fine. sorry. That's no problem. That's what you're here for. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a there's one just made for the club by Brothers in Rhythm, who also remixed Garbage and OMD, uh, and then Left Field, which were like giants of techno, progressive house music. Um, they did a actually a pretty decent one called the Dub Oddity Remix, which is just it's really spacey and kind of psychedelic. It's, it's kind I, of a cool. I guarantee. Remix. That at least half of those remixes isolate the "got to believe" sound for their. Uh, you got to, yeah. Their remix, yeah, yeah. You got to, and that's when you hit those the, those BPMs up, and and baby, dance floors uh, beckons. All right, <laughs> that's all I got. All right, so the next track I think is actually the. I think I said that track three was my favorite. No, track three was in my top three. Night flights is my second favorite song in the album. Night Flights. Let's hear a little bit of it. song was was written by uh scott walker who was it scott walker right was scott walker part of a band yeah the walker brothers the walker brothers walker brothers yeah he was part of a band but scott walker was more known as like scott walker he started out as like a 60s 
like, I don't know, folk pop guy. And as the years went on, he actually died this year. Um, he's a huge blind spot for me. But people I respect really like his music. And one of these days, I got to just dive in. Are either of you Scott right. Walker fans? No, this is the... F- yeah. yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard the name. Um, he was a fantastic governor in uh, Wisconsin. All right, all right. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Uh, you got there, wait, 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 there's on, the funny on. story I'm, about... I'm, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm going to wrench it away from Eric. You guys, Eric, you've never heard of Scott Walker. I mean, something tells me I have, but no, it didn't ring a bell. No, there's no, we're not shaming anybody tonight. I'm just saying, I even said, I'm not familiar with his work, but it's always been one of those names I've heard that I knew I needed to check out. Kind of like up until we really dived into Todd Rudgren for the the Nine Inch Nails uh, era, uh, I heard his name. Scott Walker kind of has that same thing for me where a bunch of people that I respect, respected him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, so I guess what happened was uh, Bowie was uh, introduced to Scott Walker, uh, Scott Walker's music because his girlfriend at the time, not this is years before, said that she much preferred Walker's music to Bowie's and played his albums instead. So that's that's how he figured out who it was. Scott Walker has a vocal style singing very similar to David Bowie. If you've noticed, I, I, I shared that with you earlier. Um, the original cover the original version and yeah you could definitely hear Bowie doing his thing oh yeah because uh, this song is from 1978 right uh, it takes a, I guess apparently according to this kind of review I'm reading the original version is a lot more dramatic um, and Bowie just kind of plays it straight on the song but it's, there's a lot of backup vocals that do a really good job on this thing or Mark well, I, I have to, you know, the Scott Walker connection. I, I'm actually, I gotta, I gotta pull a mark and, well, actually, I think the guy probably has like 72 albums, but I got, I gotta do a run through in that guy because this is inspiring me to do it because, I, like I said, heard plenty about him. I'm sure I've heard some songs, but I, I don't remember them. Um, I'm sure we have some audience members who are big fans or at least could say, you guys don't know more about Scott Walker. Well, listen, I know plenty about King Crimson. How much do you know about Thrack? Anyways, um, yeah, no, but it, you know, David was, he was so, he, he was so, he, he, he was so influenced by him that it, it was kind of mutual. And there was actually during, uh, the, uh, some kind of birthday tribute to David Bowie, they got a message from Scott Walker and he said that, you know, Hey David, you freed so many artists and thank you for all the years and generosity of spirit. And David Bowie said, you've really got to me there. I'm afraid. I think he's probably been my idol since I was a kid. That's very moving. So that that tells me I need to listen more to Scott Walker. Anyhow, it is a great song, man. I, I think this song is the most experimental on the album. I think that the uh, the, the background vocals that sound kind of like they're like a diva that's chopped up and then pumped through a keyboard. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I, I really I really think those are some of the the, the, the best the best trying to you know be experimental but also take the new jack swing vibe together and mesh them together uh, I think choosing to do that on what's the cover of a psych folk icon from back in the day is a pretty pretty good move by mr Bowie here I, I I really enjoy this song it also it kind of reminds me this song and, and there's it has a similar title to you know uh, what the African night flight from the uh, the 
the Lodger album. This sounds like it could be on like a Lodger to me, I think. That um, those hooky keyboard uh, melodies where it sounds like a plane, like flying over your head, yeah. right? Yeah. Those are also exist in the original version as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's super catchy. This song is definitely a highlight of the record. Um, Bowie did it justice. Um, it he is putting his slightly different spin on it, but when you listen to the original. I mean, his cover version of I Feel Free is definitely going off of the unbeaten path. This one really takes that template of the original version and he puts his slight spin on it, but there's definitely a, you can hear the similarities very easily. Um, It's kind of like his cover version of Bang Bang with Iggy Pop, which is a terrible song on both ends, but this is, you know, it, it, um, it holds true to the original is what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. You know, there, there's a little bit, the bass is kind of plastic sounding, but it doesn't take it away from me. Uh, the vocals have some really great layering and, uh, the, yeah, the, that airplane you sound, you, you, you speak of, there's like, there's like a, some good abstract electro shading and guitar squelches to this song that it definitely gives me Berlin era vibes. Uh, I think it's, it's definitely him saying, you know what? Let's do something that sounds like some of that stuff I used to do with Eno to me. Palace Athena. So this is definitely the 1990s in a whole other way. Um, I think that somebody was listening to CNC Music Factory on the way to the studio and they decided to write this song. <laughs> it, you know, yeah, it's, it doesn't have a traditional. It doesn't have a traditional structure. It's kind of experimental, but just in like that club way that Eric is speaking of. Uh, some of the themes. It, it, it definitely reminded me. Like I listened to it back to back with that Sex in the Church song, and they could just be looped together. Uh, the Sex in the Church song is what's going to come from Buddha of Suburbia. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what they were doing in the studio when they recorded this. I, I like that 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 rhythmic D-A-D-A-D-A-D-A vocal uh, rhythm that's going on. Besides that, I could you could leave this off the album. I don't know. What do you think, Eric? Uh, as far as the wedding songs that he turned into tracks, I do like the music on this one I mean it still is pretty elevator music as far as it goes but I as far as seeing him experiment with the electronic music I I guess I appreciate it um but I also every time it came on I just skipped to the Jack Dangers remix because that was just gonna be more interesting so uh, and he does two for this one so anyways uh yeah it's 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 fine it's it's totally, you know. What did I say? It's like it's a catwalk music for the for Fashion Week at JC Penney's. Oh yeah, no, there, there's there's the the flashing lights are there and the, uh, you know, just just the, the too many cameras and everybody's pants are too big and baggy. It's it's not good. Right. It's 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 but it's yeah. It's strings and house drums. Like that's that's 
really what makes up the song. So, like marble statues in the background for some reason. Oh, definitely, yeah. Some pillars and some flowing linen. Absolutely. Marble and uh, marble flo- floor work. Yes, definitely. Oh, no doubt. Black and white floors. Uh, yeah, Mark, how do you feel about this? Um, I'm not overly impressed with it. It's an interesting '90s era house music. Um, it's got little Bowie's wailing sax. Um, David Bowie's wailing sax. Um, when I think about this, I think about Moby's early work. Um, when I was when Play came out in 1999, I got really into that record. I know that Moby's in the doghouse with his comments on Natalie Portman and just kind of being tone deaf around that whole thing. But um, I went back and during that time frame and listened to some of Moby's early records, and I'm sure that he was also a big fan of uh, of this song. Um, also David Bowie released this under a different name on something different called the Dow Jones. So uh, that that was, this came out first, but later he was a secret DJ at some music festival, like in the Midwest. The the Phoenix festival. Yeah. 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 And he, and he, his name, cause he was a secret was the Dow Jones index. Dow being T A W. Uh, yeah. Or did I, did I say that right? That's yeah. how you pronounce it. That's how you Dow pronounce Jones. it. Yeah, Taoism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, so that was his. So yeah, he played it again. Like, kind of did like a remake of it for that. But, um, yeah. It just goes on a little too long. I mean, I could see this in, you know, some early '90s sabotage spy movie. <laughs> but uh, that's right. When you're breaking into the, the the it's the fashion gala below. And uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's uh, just goes on a little too long. I mean, if, uh, if you're going to do an instrumental that uh, I don't know, it, it seems to be a little out of place for how the record is being, uh, is flowing so far. Um, so I don't know, maybe uh, skip track one, Put this song at the very end. Put the wedding song at the very beginning. I don't know. That, that's not a bad suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it could be a good weird. Uh, like this. This could be this album's dancing skeleton children circle or whatever the hell that song was called. Yeah. Closer. Yeah. Um, you all right, Eric? Yep. Eric's doing dishes no. while we're talking. Yeah, it's all yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's too much shit to uh, over in this garage. Sorry. Yeah, no, for, for you, it's like a slideshow Bob and the Rakes. But, uh, <laughs> moving right along to my favorite track on the album, Miracle Goodnight. Burning up each other's love, burning up our lives. Tread up comes and working on uh it's my favorite song too <laughs> i yeah it's, I, a, I, it's, a, it's a weird ridiculous song and if anybody else wrote it or recorded it i don't know if i'd like it as much but i didn't think i, did. I didn't think i was gonna like it because the music in the background is like a it's like this like very simple I think the keyboard line, I think what you're trying to say, it's a little too cutesy. It's a little too precious, right? Yeah. It's a, yeah. And it definitely is more on the hip-hop tip than the acid jazz tip on this song. His vocal delivery is so good in this song. 
I get stuck in my head the the kind of the kind of singing he does. And it's like definitely that feeling of like you're having the best dream of your life, but you're gonna wake up any minute and it's gonna be gone, and then the crushing reality of your existence will remind you that it was just a dream. Uh, but that being love, you know, and uh, just that he doesn't deserve this person he's with. It's and it's a very heart on his sleeve. Just a just a tribute to uh, his wife. Yeah, for the love of God, he. I love you in the morning sun. I love you in my dreams. I love the sound of making love. He just keeps saying love over and over again. It's ridiculous. But this scratches the same itch for me that, that the upbeatness and the classical strumming of the guitar. Some of the guitar parts almost sound like Django Reinhardt to me in this song, especially that little guitar solo, and that's all Nile Rodgers. Um, it kind of gives me like a Super Mario 2 or Super Mario World vibe. I know that sounds ridiculous, but this song's cutesiness, to Mark's point, reminds me of Super Mario Brothers. And in this case, that's not a problem. It's because of how bouncy it is. Yeah. I mean, everything yeah. in like Mario is just like very bouncy. It's just upbeat as you're just kind of doing the little side scrolling through, uh, through the world. So like, yeah, it's undeniably catchy. You can't not help but smile when you listen to the song, unless you're just kind of jaded and just not in the mood for something this out, upbeat. Um, when I first heard it, I was kind of thought it was a little ridiculous, but what really brought it to life for me, um, which really gave me much more appreciation for it was the visual component for the mu music video. Um, David Bowie's performance in that music video just sold the song for me. Hardcore. Yeah. He goes back uh, to, he goes back to some of his mime work Yeah, and some of his acting and, there's even this whole Buster Keaton breakdown where he is like doing pratfalls. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. That's one of my favorite parts of the song because all of a sudden the keyboard arrangements really open up. Uh, you get some of that lushness. Um, it's got some funky bass, uh, but the, the music video is, it's fun to watch. It's ridiculous, especially as the, the, the statue bus are doing their haunted mansion thing by singing along at the same right. time. Yes. It's definitely uh, <laughs> <laughs> back, back, you know, the two things back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, the, 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 the statues in the background of the, the, the catwalks and also the haunted mansions of uh, Mario. It's all tied together. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a good song. I, it's not my favorite song off the record, but it's certainly in the up, up there. I, I don't know what I think jump. They say is probably my favorite song, but this one is so goddamn catchy. Yeah. It's, it's hard to um, not appreciate right. it. And he's doing, I mean, he's, he's emoting in his singing, which he, I would say he was not doing so much on never let me down. So for fans, like this would be the first time they probably felt like they heard Bowie in a long time. You know, that's really, 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 really trying, you know. Uh, yeah, you're going to get you're going to get some of that performance acting we talk about that we always like when somebody puts their whole body into it. And then uh, a lot of a lot of striking poses and using hands to tell the what he's trying to sing about. I, I dig it. Yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's a great upbeat ditty. I, I, I really I, I if I were to make a top 100 Bowie songs list. This one might actually creep in off the Yeah, side. yeah. Uh, there are two remixes, both done by Tony Maserati, which I wish was the remix name, the DJ name for Tony Visconti, but it's not. Uh, Tony Maserati was, the, was a house producer for what probably was just about to drop, Bad Boy Entertainment. 
he was one of Pete Diddy's producers, so on a lot of those Mary J. Blige and Biggie hits, he's he's the producer on it. Um, which I'm not a bad boy. I'm not a I'm not a Puff Daddy fan. Um, even Biggie's a good rapper, but a lot of that production is not good. But these are kind of fun remixes. Uh, one is just the strings um, and the singing. So you really get to hear that vocal work and it just kind of has a haunting quality to it. Um, the other one, the uh, the uh, two chord blunted mix is is like total Philly, uh, Philly jazz, Philly uh, New Jack Swing kind of bass slaps and synth blasts. Um, so uh, those are some kind of fun remixes on that one. I will check out the one with just the strings. It sounds yeah, good to make, me. It's called the Make Believe Remix. All right. Well, all that being said, I am going to go take a break and let Eric talk about the next track. Don't let me down and down. What I am going to do is go listen to a UB40 album and get the same exact feeling. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're, uh, Steve's not wrong. It's, um, a cover of Tara, which is like, uh, so Amon went to Paris and returned home, uh, with a album by a friend of hers and she, uh, suggested he cover a song from it. And, you know, he, this was the wedding, this was the wedding present, essentially all sort of backing vocals and definitely a, a Island influenced, <laughs> uh, electronic component like uh, UB40 and you have this very strange very uh, disorienting vocal delivery of don't let me down and down I would agree with that I think it's uh, Bowie trying to do a like a Sade song and I know that Steve made the joke about UB40 but it's just it's a little too adult contemporary for my taste and it just it just relatively bland um so yeah, it's my least favorite song off the record. It's the worst song in my mind. We actually haven't talked enough about that. This album is his most adult contemporary album. I Spoilers, I like it better than Never Let Me Down. But this one sounds like a lost Phil Collins record at times. Sure. And I would agree, I do like this one more than Never Let Me Down as yeah, well. It definitely sounds like, you know, I, I definitely, I, there's, there's three categories for Bowie. There's the classic stuff, of which we all know what that is. There's the 80s stuff, which is like the bottom tier. And then there's the stuff that came out when we were getting into David Bowie until he died, which is the uh, the middle tier. And this is definitely coming in between that bottom tier and that middle tier of quality-wise and timing-wise. But uh, yeah, this song right here, this, this is probably, I want to say, one of his lowest moments. I cannot get through this song. I, I, no, I can't. Terrible. I, let, I just let the room and let my dogs out. That's how much I got to say about it. I, it's hard for me to get through this track. Yeah. yeah. Now, in terms of the adult contemporary uh, comment, I think this might have a, uh, a competitor to that title in hours because that's mm. hours really does feel like it, that could be like Sting's Fields of Gold album. Um, but it's been years since I've listened to that. So maybe when we get to ours and hopefully by me saying this now, doesn't mean that's our next roll dice, ah, but, uh, doom. let's, yeah, we've just doomed us all. Um, yeah, I do have to say that even though, even though ours came out during a more, uh, that came out in 99, that came out the no, same no, year no, as it, the fragile. No, no. Yeah. And definitely it came out in a more acceptable era of Bowie, if you will. Yeah. The low point of that era. 
and that album I, I it puts me to sleep just thinking about it so yeah I mean, at least this one has some upbeat stuff like the last track right anyways let's not waste any more time on this because we got a whole other album to speed through which we will but um yeah that's uh don't let me down and down a dumb title dumb song sorry they, they moving all, on they can't all be zingers so let's uh let's look for lester now in looking for lester which is a uh, a showcase for lester bowie who both eric and i have mentioned tonight is <clears throat> not related to david bowie is a uh, a trumpet player and I love the opening of this song. It's it's new jack trumpets all over the place. This basically reminds me of a, what the next season of a different world would have used for its uh, opening theme music. It's it's just slick production and horns, and uh, that's about all I got to say about it. It's just an opportunity to let the band show their show their kind of show their stuff a little a little bit. So it's still in that acid jazz sound but it's a lot more organic you got mike garson plinking away you got you know lester bowie flatten and uh i mean it's fine i i don't think it's as memorable as like the other instrumentals on here or like or at least not as much to me as like like palace athena but i I would i would take this over palace athena myself but it's definitely of its time it's definitely new jack uh you know this mutated into some of the stuff you hear in Black Star decades later, but this, this is the 1993 version of that. This is where I said this could be a backing track to an Us Three song, um, and I don't really mean that in a bad bad way. It's just like you said, for its time, this is what it was kind of doing. Um, I do like the jazzy tinkling of the keys by Mike Garson. Um, but I feel I keep saying this: this album needed an editor uh, in terms of just. It doesn't need to go on for this long. Uh, it's not a bad instrumental, but it just... And I, I'm not against long songs by any means. I just like them to have a little bit more dynamics of what's going on here. Um, and when it doesn't really capture me, uh, I, I tend to zone out. It's not a bad song. Um, it's just could have been better with a little bit of editing. Yeah, and even though it's more upbeat than the last track... I gotta say the last track is so bad that despite the quality of the last three songs, it's the the end of the album was hard for me to get through every time because of track nine. And yeah, looking for Lester suffered from that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I don't got much more to say about it. It's a upbeat instrumental horn ditty. Sure. All right. Well, then let's go to track eleven, which is I know it's gonna happen someday. was a cover of a Morrissey song. It was off of his album, which is not in front of me, and I didn't write it down. But it was an album that was released in the uh, uh, mid-'80s, produced by Mick Ronson. Um, yeah. your, I do your appreciate arsenal. Bowie's... Your, uh, just your yeah. arsenal? Okay. 
Um, I do appreciate Bowie's soulful, gospel-tinged song. Uh, I think that he does a great vocal performance, very similar to the original done by Morrissey. I don't like Morrissey, I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Uh, I think the Smiths are just okay, um, and I know I'm going to get hate for that because they're a classic band, uh, but there's just something about Morrissey that I just... Or maybe it's Smith, the Smiths fans that I just puts me off on wanting to actually dive into their records. I always just seems like a bunch of pretentious assholes. And this is, I'm definitely king of the pretentious assholes, but these people take the cake. I, I've never, I've never, I could never figure out my disdain for the Smiths too. And it's actually, it is a disdain. I've never liked Morrissey. I've never yeah. liked the Smiths, but I like every other artist that usually super fans of those two artists enjoy. I can't explain right. it. I don't know. Because I actually do like this song. I think it's all right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't... I mean, I, I really dislike Morrissey the person. I probably am the more... The, probably I like the Smiths probably more than you, you two guys. I think the band was super tight. And he... I could see why people went crazy for him. Like, he became a messiah, but Morrissey did. Like, he had good style, and he had these very poetic long-winded verses that he would sing that were super clever like undeniably like this guy had wit to him he was a smart very clever singer um you know he had a good voice uh but he's ridiculous and i think his solo work does not suffers from not having that that tight uh johnny marr uh band um which they did some you know they were somewhere at between punk and post-punk um doing very, very clean, very raw rock. And uh, I mean, I get why people like the Smiths. Uh, this, this song is funny. There's a funny story to Morrissey and Bowie's relationship because Morrissey was a big Bowie fan and Bowie thought that this song sounded basically like Morrissey doing Bowie. So he's like, eh, what else am I going to do? I got to be Bowie doing Morrissey doing Bowie. <laughs> so that was his, that was his choice on this one. Um, they did have a falling out. Um, apparently what happened is later, I forget what year it was. Um, and uh, Morrissey uh, was opening for Bowie for their UK stint. And after nine shows, Morrissey quit without even informing, informing Bowie and just quit and took his band and left them without an opener for the rest of their tour. And I guess what had happened was Bowie really wanted to do with Morrissey what he did with Nine Inch Nails, which was come out during the last, the last few songs, play some songs together. And, um, and then Morrissey leaves and Bowie continues on, which I love that part of that show. I thought that was like the coolest part, but Morrissey called it a diva move and like felt like he was trying to steal his Morrissey's fans of having that classic closing number. So that's why he left. So it was a total ego thing. Morrissey, who okay, that that's great. Good for Morrissey uh, for that round. Can he explain why he's more well known for canceling shows now than ever doing them? Yeah, yeah, he's no, he's he yeah. he's awful, and he's like he's he could, he's a he's just all about provocation, and you know, hence his like anti-immigration comments now sounding a lot more like Eric Clapton. Oh no, he's a yeah, he's, he's a hero of the alt right now, and uh, yeah, he loves attention, and uh, I'm not a fan of him. Nick Cave recently wrote a good little article on him because, I, like I mentioned before, he has that uh, Q&A website about separating the art from the artist, which we do have to ask ourselves to do sometimes. And he says, you absolutely, 
you know, free speech is there. Good for them. You tell them they're an asshole, but you can still enjoy their songs, which, okay. But I'm glad that I don't got to do that because I never enjoyed his songs in the first place. So there you go. There you go. What, I mean, do you like this cover version? Oh, or this, are you, actually, no, yeah. I, I dig this. This reminds me of something off Songs of Faith and Devotion. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah, a good I cover. I like it. I like this style. I, I could do for a whole album of this kind of song with uh, David Bowie. That'd be fun. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's uh, close this album out with uh, the wedding song. All right. Bring PM Dawn back into the studio. Yeah. <laughs> It's essentially the same song from the opener with lyrics. They do the strings are a little bit more uh, in your face, and there's this again. There's a vocalization I like that sounds like a diva they chopped up that goes hopefully sounds better than that. And um, it's actually my, one of my favorite parts of the album. If you listen to this track it's during the last like it really is pronounced in the last like 30 seconds of the song um not a great song it's about as good as the opener you know it's a it is what it is it's the wedding song yeah i could care less i mean um (laughs) this song should have just been the representation of the wedding song rather than the first one or just make that a one minute intro and then go into the next track uh it's not that uh powerful of a melody in order for it to warrant like oh great we're doing a a callback so i mean it's a fine album closer but just again make a decision here and it it just really essentially nails point the home that or nails the point home that uh this album was directly inspired by his um, marriage and his love for Iman, which more power to him. That's great. Um, but uh, for me, the listener, it's like, all right, finally, we're done. At this point, you're saying, yeah, we get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what yeah. I, I say you do is you chop down that first track, like you said, stick this as the second to last track, and then put Miracle Goodnight as the last track. And I think it would work much better. I think... I think a good testament to love would be that good upbeat ditty is the closing track to the album. Sure. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I can't believe we spoke as long as we did. Ooh. I would I would say at some point, like halfway through, I started to convince myself I liked some of these songs quite a bit. Um, so, uh, but and then some of them I could are, are still awful and cringeworthy and those really slow this process down yeah maybe two of these tracks that would make it to my all-timer list and that by all-timer i mean top 100 so anyways uh let's do the boltoning eric yes but before we rank this album let's hear what young master lennox research assistant of pod like a whole has to say Okay, Lennox, what did you think about it? I'd rank Black Tie White Noise uh, one out of five bolts. I think that the worst song on this album is Black Tie White Noise. <laughs> My favorite song on this album is Jump, They Say. The thing I didn't like about this album is that I didn't like the music on it. The thing I liked about this album was that he hadn't come back from music in a long time, and he came back with an album a little bit better than Never Let Me Down. 
Um, like I said, I was able to have some fun with this, but that being said, I knew like, I knew I was making the best out of lemons, so to speak. So, uh, I give it 1.5, 1.5 out of five bolts. All right. Um, I think that's fair. What, do you remember what your, were you one, uh, for, uh, never let me down? Yeah. Yeah, so this is just slightly better than Never Let Me Down for right. you. Okay, um, for me, uh, I'm giving it a 2.5 um, out of 5 bolts. I think that it's not his worst record. I do enjoy it better than Never Let Me Down. It has some moments where I appreciate what he was trying to do. As this is considered the uh, the beginning of David Bowie's resurgence back to respectability in uh, the mainstream and the creative world. Um, I can see the hints of what's to come, but I'm also annoyed by his desire to want to stay with what was current in the moment. Um, so for me, that's a 2.5. I always wonder what could have happened if Nile Rogers really tried to get him more focused on making Let's Dance 2 or something of that nature, which had a little bit more commercial appeal, but at the same time also with that Bowie experimentalism. Um, I felt that this album was just kind of an overly mess that uh, people were afraid to say no to Bowie. Yeah, that's actually a good point. If uh, Rogers could have wrested control a little bit more for why bring in a hit maker if you want to make hits, maybe this would be an all-timer. I don't know. Um, yeah. It definitely could have used an editor. And uh, could use somebody to work on the sound collage a little bit more. I'll give right. it. A two. I'll give it a two. Um, better than I anticipated. Like I said, I never listened to it all the way through before, and easier went down easier as a whole. I think than uh, never let me down, but not much more. It, it still kind of was a chore. Um, but I did discover a couple of songs that I really liked that I didn't know about before, and that's the whole point of this project is we're discovering things by an artist that we didn't even right. listen to before maybe an entire album that we didn't listen to before that we'll talk about briefly yeah. in a moment <laughs> the title track black tie and, white uh, noise is uh worth its weight in gold as far as if you're into looking at the backstory of a song and really getting down to what it's about i i like i said i was fascinated by that song even though it's not a good song i was uh i found it uh to be quite quite the uh the thick book to dive into you watch you watch the video for that, then you watch the movie Falling Down, and it paints the whole picture. So. <laughs> My goodness, you're still here. Um, when we rolled the dice on this one, we didn't anticipate Buddha of Suburbia, which became a whole other discussion. A short discussion, but a whole other discussion. And uh, if my watch is correct, this goddamn thing is almost three hours long, which is preposterous. You know, your hosts always talk about how can we shorten these things? Should we divide it into two episodes? And, you know, we just go where the diamond dice takes us, man. Sometimes you want to talk about a shitty record for almost three hours. It's what happens. So, not to keep you in suspense, we will roll the dice for the next album now. But the next episode you're going to hear is about Buddha of Suburbia. But let's take a gander at the diamond dice and what the next homework assignment will be. 
So Eric, roll let's the roll the dice roll the and see where we're going dice. next. Alrighty. What could it possibly be? Oh God. Let's, let's see here. Something in the early teens. <laughs> Fourteen. Fourteen is scary monsters. Yes, yes. Oh, it's almost too early. Oh no. <laughs> it, oh, yeah. I have so much to say. Um, Amazing. Oh, that's exciting. Well, now it doesn't see. Well, here's the problem. God damn it! I almost wanted to tell you reroll it. I, we can't do it yet. We're not ready. No, I, I. This is the greatest. This might be the greatest album of all time. Spoiling what I'm gonna say. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, like this is uh, this is definitely something I've been looking forward to. Oh no, we have to listen to Scary Monsters every day, multiple times for the next few weeks. Poor us. Oh, this is fantastic. This is great. I can't tell you. There's every song in there is a hit. You know, there's no like. What do we? We don't have to pretend that we're not going to love this record. This is great. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. Oh, boy. So um, thanks again for listening. Um, this has been Mark Branstead. Eric Anderson, uh, Stephen Chambers, and we—you uh, can come and find us on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram pages, and even potentially throw a, a, a nickel into our guitar case on Patreon. Um, one, we'll one, have one links these, to those in the show notes. One of these days, I'm going to have to replace this microphone here. Absolutely, and maybe get uh, some better. Um, bandwidth and sound for you folks out there actually, you know, or that's what, that's what actually you know what no let's let's talk about that for a second but the microphones are fine you see we cannot do the show in person as much as we used to like to because life gets in the way we need to buy part of the internet need to buy part of the internet gentlemen it's true we need to get in <laughs> on the ground floor um so <laughs> Um, if you want to, uh, contribute and be a, uh, a contributor, like friends like these viewers, like you, whatever, um, please do so that we, we always appreciate it or in hell, maybe if we get enough money, we can start making some merchandise. And yep. if you are a contributor, my God, you That's got right. yourself a free shirt. Yeah. You know what? Maybe if things go in the right direction and then we make a lot of money off that stuff, you're an investor. Absolutely. Um, but I, I really got to say, I got to say, I am not a religious man. This world is too dark to believe in any kind of higher power. But I do have to say that this album that we listened to tonight, it was not painful, but it was homework, as Mark would say. And also, it was making you eat your vegetables, as Eric would say, which is what he says sometimes I do to people when I want them to listen to an album. But the fact that we powered through this, and this is the one that definitely did the wedding and the wedding closing song, which we kept saying about Scary Monsters, was similar somehow maybe maybe that just blew a little breath in the diamond dice to get it to go in the direction we wanted yeah i don't know oh this yeah is, that's exactly this is what we needed oh boy. all right, all right guys well we hope we brought you closer to pod bye everyone